This is Jocko Podcast number 164 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I crept ahead a few feet and raised carefully to look over the bank. Crack! A rifle was thrust up and fired only inches from Hale's head. The bullet split his scalp and the concussion broke his eardrums. Blood streamed over his face, blinding him, and I helped get him back to Stuart. Then I pitched a second bomb, close in. Meanwhile, McIntyre had not halted. He had rushed on and Sambro and I half raised as we hurried after him. A machine gun blazed at us from a spot on the right and we dove into the mud. Crash. Slam. The Stokes gun was at work, but its shells dropped short, falling almost in our path. We rose again as the Maxim stopped firing. Then, a flaming white-hot instant. Oblivion. When I recovered consciousness, my head was splitting with pain and a terrible nausea had seized my stomach. The Stokes shell had dropped beside me, throwing me bodily into the mud, and Sambro was stunned as well. He was lying in the slime and feeling his limbs, certain that he was wounded. All around us was a frightful clamor of guns and bombs and rifle shots. I heard McIntyre's voice shouting, five rounds, rapid. Then it stopped, but my nose was bleeding and I was too dizzy to stand. We crawled towards the sound, then halted. There was a great plunging in the murk, and two dim figures came toward us, puffing and blowing, tugging at something. They were Germans, big men, and a machine gun and tripod. They placed it just in front of us, and one man yanked at a long cartridge belt. I pulled the pin from my last bomb and heaved the missile at a count of two. It burst just beneath the tripod. One man went down like a huge tree. The other struggled a moment before he stilled. We went by them, making sure the gun was ruined, and a new-made crater found a man of A Company with his wrist almost severed. We bandaged him quickly and sent him back, and were rising to go on when Clark came stumbling through the mud and yelled at us, Come on, give them! His shout was cut off. He pitched dead in front of us. A man scurried by with a stretcher, and we went over to the bank where we could see men moving. It was Lewis Gunner, and... He said McIntyre had been shot through the stomach and was dying. They got him on the old stretcher, but he went on to the short bank in front and found old Bill, Mickey, and Johnson crouched there shooting at a German gun with that streaked sparks not more than 30 yards away. Sambro had bombs with him, and he and I hurled them. The burst seems right, seemed right on the gun, and it was silenced. I stared at the other men on the bank. They were all dead. Melville and Ira and Jennings lying there together, rifle in hand, all shot through the head by one sweep of the German gun. Old Bill had seen it and stayed thereafter trying to pot the gunner himself. The fourth dead man was poor old Sam, at rest at last. We looked around and found all the rest of the party had gone, but another fit of sickness seized me and I could not move for a long time. Sambro stayed with me. We did not go back. We had to crawl a distance to avoid the machine gun fire, but the main fighting had shifted over to the left. A light vapor was stealing over the ground, making it harder to see, and I stumbled over a body as we found the road bank. It was the professor 
riddled with bullets, dead. He was covered with mud, had lost his steel helmet, had evidently got lost in the darkness, and there he lay, after years of study and culture, with glassy eyes and face upturned to the sky, a smashed cog of the war machine, with not a hope of burial excepting by a chance shell, and the mist thickened and rolled suddenly over him. Night found us still crouched in our cover, and I got up and went around the shell holes until I found Old Bill and Johnson. They told me that a relief was due and that there had been no orders. Then a corporal from another platoon came and called to us to follow him. We were to go back to Ypres. The 16th Battalion was relieving us. We went and met the incoming men by our old trench, where were joined by the remainder of the company and heard that Big Glenn had been killed, that Izzy died gloriously in the fighting at the Graff House. All that long drag back was a hideous nightmare. The track was worse than when we had come, and then the shelling was incessant. incessant. We moved with infinite slowness, every step a struggle, a tearing physical effort, and a vast noise was all, thundering, rolling, clamor that dulled our thinking, mercifully some smothering some of our agonized impressions of that night before. The November rains were chilling us, freezing us, our feet were always soggy, and we were almost despondent. All that time we had been out, we had talked but little. Each man seemed busy with his own thoughts, disinclined to speak to one another. There had been too many of our friends killed, the men we had been with for months. I found that McLeod and Farmer had died in the mud. Egglestone had been wounded and placed on a stretcher, and then he and his bearers were all blown to fragments by a big shell. And poor old Flynn had been killed. We seemed to move in a daze to do things as if we were automatons. When it grew dark, we moved again to form a new line. The Huns spotted us and started shelling while machine gun fire raked the ground. Upham and I were together as we started digging. I saw a body just in front of us, a big man with his equipment over his greatcoat. Catch hold of that stiff, I said to Upham. Pull him back here and we'll use him for part of our parapet. He stared at me. Don't, he yelled. Don't touch him. I seized the corpse myself, rolling it over into place, and up him sprang from where he had been, spading and commenced a new hole over to the right. A salvo of shells came and exploded. Whizzing fragments were all around me, but I was not touched. Upham fell and was dead when I reached him. There was a strange cry further on. It was the sergeant major who should have gone to the depot, the old original. He had insisted in coming in for one more trip and his jaw had been carried away by shrapnel. He died before morning. Two other men were down, Johnson and Barron, both wounded. The shelling continued all that night and the next day. 
We had dug deep V-shaped pits, connecting some of them, and there we crouched, gray faces under muddy helmets, red-rimmed eyes staring, dazed, wondering, our brains numbed beyond thinking by the incessant explosions. One of the new men pitched down between our shelter and the next one. He was pierced in a dozen places, and one arm had been sheared from his body by shrapnel. Mickey sat beside me, shuddering, half-stunned, staring unseeing, his limbs twitching convulsively at each concussion. And that right there is a couple of pages worth of reading of the book, and we go on written by a guy by the name of Will Bird, who was a Canadian soldier that fought in World War I. And like I said, that's just a couple of pages from the book, but the pages go on and on and on, just like that war did. And you, you experience, like, the amount of people killed around him, wounded around him, it's... It's horrific, and it's hard to even fathom what that did to these men before, during, and after combat, physically, and mentally, and psychologically. And the physical part, these are things that you can see. You can see those wounds. You can understand them, but the psychological part is perhaps the hardest to understand. Now, I say that this podcast is about human nature. And the reason it is and the reason that I focus on human nature is because, I, in my opinion, in order to lead people, you have to understand people. You have to understand what their nature is. You have to understand human nature. And a lot of human nature boils down to psychology. And I recently got a recommendation from a trooper out on the interwebs who recommended a book called Psychology for the Fighting Man. And this is a book that was first printed in 1943. And the book is, it's an incredible book. It's filled with an immense amount of very useful information. And it's written as almost like a mental guide to the American military men that are getting ready to go fight the Germans and the Japanese in World War II. Obviously, 1943, that's when it's written. This is right in the middle of World War II. And even though the book is 75 years old, the the information that's in it, the knowledge that is contained inside of it can still be utilized today in any leadership situation. And in fact, this book is so dense with information that I'm actually going to split it into two separate podcasts so that we can go into some more detail and not end up with a 14-hour podcast. <laughs> so let's kick it off. Going into this book, as I said, the title of the book is Psychology for the Fighting Man. And the subtitle is What You Should Know About Yourself and Others. 
kicks off part one, the psychology and combat. When the British 8th Army pursued the retreating Axis forces from Egypt through Libya, they found along route, they found along the route great quantities of abandoned equipment. Some tanks and guns in perfect condition and gasoline for the tanks and ammunition for the guns. The physical materiel of a large Axis force was there, but it was useless to the Axis. There were no men left to operate it. You keep hearing it said that men cannot fight without weapons, but it is just as true that weapons cannot fight without men. An army is men. Not any men at all, for a crowd of men may only be a mob, but trained and equipped men. What sort of equipment do men of an army need? Planes, tanks, guns, and jeeps, mortars, grenades, rifles, and bayonets, camouflage, and mess kits. Above all, food and water. Everything that the ordnance and quartermaster can supply, but that is not all. No. The men need morale. They need courage. They must have confidence in each other and the belief in ultimate victory. Who is the quartermaster who can issue stocks of courage and confidence? Yet these are essential weapons. So, we're starting off with a great point. Where do you get your courage issued? Not from the quartermaster, not from the supply guy. No, it's got to come from somewhere else. And it is just as important part of winning a war as tanks, planes, bullets, and bombs going on. And the army must have leaders too, plenty of them. COs and NCOs, who supplies them? Besides leaders, it must have all sorts of special abilities and skills. Mechanical, mechanical ability in, in particular is needed in this new mechanized war. Ability to drive trucks, pilot ability, mathematical ability, cooking ability, clerk skills, lots and lots of abilities. You can't fight a war without them. The army needs efficiency too. And efficiency means not only effective organization, there is also basic efficiency of the individual man, his strength and health, his resistance to hardship and fatigue, his alertness even when fatigued and despite freezing cold or exhausting heat. Toughness of body is a weapon indispensable to victory. This book is so straightforward. It's just so straightforward. And it doesn't pull any punches. It's, it's one of the best things about this. And you can tell it's written, it's directed it's directed for like the frontline grunt trooper. That's who it's directed at. And not just the infantry guy, but anybody in the army doing any job. Mm. And it's, it's refreshing to read something that's as straightforward as this book is. Going on, the army has a perpetual problem of psychological logistics, a problem of the supply of motives and emotions, of aptitudes and abilities, of habits and wisdom. How does it get this mental materiel to the right places at the right time? That is what this book is about. So again, it's looking at the psychological aspect of warfare and saying, how do you, how do you deliver these necessary supplies? We need courage, right? We need abilities. We need emotions. We need aptitudes. We need the right habits. How do you deliver those? Back to the book, if the army cannot find a man with needed ability, an effort is made to find one with an aptitude for being trained in that ability. And then it trains them all, in part by teaching them the rules 
and the techniques in part by giving them practice. No troops are ready to go into combat until their training period is over, and even then they are still green troops. The training is still going on in combat until finally the men are seasoned troops, have learned how to meet the unexpected emergencies of war, and have acquired that competence and confidence that is the basis of their courage. It is this human materiel that determines more than any other one thing whether an army will win or lose. Guns and chow are essential too, but given equally of supply, victory goes to the better troops, troops composed of men who know their jobs and do them willingly and well, men with initiative to act by themselves, the trained troops which make up the seasoned army. There are, moreover, fundamental differences between people that affect their ways of fighting and their abilities to fight. These differences are not, however, due to blood, as the Nazis teach, but mostly due to training, tradition, home life, and other things that have a powerful effect on the character of men. War is waged best by choosing methods of warfare best adapted to the nature of our own people and opposed to the natures of the enemy peoples. American men have no particular love for killing. For the most part, they hate killing. They think it is wrong, sinful, ordinarily punishable by death. They do not look upon death as a beautiful and glorious experience, and most of them do not consider the military life as a suitable life work. War, to American men, is a dirty, disagreeable business to be gotten over as soon as possible so that we, as a nation, can get along with what we were happily engrossed in. Inventing, producing, growing, making life more useful and satisfying. Americans can stand a long, hard pull. They look forward, not back. They are slow to accept war, will not go all out until they are attacked or are sure their ideals are in grave danger. But once they have started, they do not stop or spare themselves until the goal of victory seems to them to be secure. Perhaps in 1919, they made a mistake about having already made the world safe for democracy, but they would not have stopped had they thought had they not thought themselves safe, nor will they stop now. They are not demoralized by temporary adversity or single defeats. So, some good info right there. Clearly trying to set the mental attitude of the American, young American soldiers that are reading this. Mm. We we can stand the long, hard pull. Mm. If you mess with us, we're gonna finish it. We're not demoralized by temporary adversity or single defeats. Doesn't matter. You you want a battle? Right on. Watch this. We'll be back. Continuing on, it has been said that war is inevitable, that men are so made that they just have to fight. That is true if you mean they have to be aggressive, that they need to have power and to use it, that they are forever wanting to change things that are hard to change so as that they can get on with better living. But the fact is that they do not have to fight each other. And not many Americans agree with Hitler in thinking fighting other nations a good thing for any nation, even when the ugly business ends in victory. 
there are other things than men and nations to fight. Men can fight calamity and disaster, flood, fire and famine with anger and zest and even fight nature to prevent disasters happening. They fight disease, having for a century been waging effective war upon it with innumerable conquests which history now records. They fight for freedom, freedom to worship as they wish, freedom to think and speak as they please, freedom from want and poverty, freedom from fear. That's the American and democratic philosophy, the reason why America is now at war. Every American ought to understand this to know why a nation that wants peace has to go to war. Because nobody likes murder, you have to kill the murderers. You cannot get along without police, and this war is a policing job. It's a large-scale job because it is a total war. So clearly this book is is answering a lot of questions for an 18-year-old kid that's heading out to war and maybe doesn't fully understand why or what's happening. And here it is, just laying it out. Look, these people are bad. We're good. They need. We're the police of the world. Mm. Which sometimes in, in, in today's time, people take that as a negative. Like, we can't yeah. be the world police. Yeah. But... Here he's straight up. This is straight up saying, "Yes, we are the world police. There's bad guys. We're gonna go put them down." And it's interesting too. Nobody likes murder. You have to kill murderers. That's the way it's got to be. Again, you know, these days we get so desensitized by media, right? By movies and video games and music talking about killing and like that's just that's the way we grow up. Mm-hmm. But in, in these days, you had to kind of convince people that, hey, this is the way it's going to go down. Mm. You're going to go kill people, and that's okay. Mm. Total war is just what its name implies. War on all fronts with all possible weapons. There's the home front as well as all the battle fronts. There are also the military front, the economic front, and the psychological front. Military, economic, and psychological warfare make up total war. The Germans had that big idea first, but the Americans can fight the devil with his own fire and a hotter one and are doing it. The three kinds of warfare are all related. A military success may also be an economic victory if it results in the capture of great quantities of enemy materiel or blocks important supply routes to the enemy nation. Or it can be a psychological victory if it lowers enemy morale, helps to make soldiers expect defeat, leads the enemy people to be ready to submit. What I like about this idea of total war is when you apply it to other parts of your life, right? If you apply it to business and how you can't just focus on one aspect of business. You can't just focus on, hey, we're gonna go out and create something new. Guess what, we gotta create something new. We gotta sell it. We gotta figure out the way to get the cost to produce down. We gotta figure out how we're gonna beat our competitors. We gotta figure out how we're gonna spread. You gotta figure out all these things, total war in business. Mm -hmm. In life, total war, right? How do you win? The total, your life is war. Mm -hmm. Right, your life is a war. You're fighting against all these things that are happening and you're fighting to win. Mm -hmm. You're fighting to be healthy. You're fighting to be financially stable. You're fighting to take care of your family in the best possible way. 
It's total war. And all these things, you have to fight all these fronts at the same time all the time. Yeah. That's why you can't sleep at night. Because yeah. it's total war in life. Yeah, that's so true. It's like you can, you can be like winning certain battles in life, you know? Like you can have a great job making great money, but don't exercise and be poor health yeah. you know or or opposite or what there's so many like just That's, different battles you know yeah absolutely and you have to be paying attention to those you have to pay attention to all the fronts yeah and there's a lot of times where people get focused on one front yep yeah and it just doesn't it doesn't help and even even like inside of a business you'll get a business where they just focus on one thing yeah and they'll miss that they're getting flanked yeah big time yeah a lot of those times and this goes in life obviously that's what, how I'm thinking of it but I, yeah and in, in companies right where like you say they focus so much on one thing and then a lot of times it's because that thing is like has a big payoff you right. know like you get it yeah. seems like dang I'm getting ahead huge time especially yeah. like at like at home right where let me just put in just a few more hours of work, right? A week for a month, two months, three months. And dang, that paycheck comes in and you do so well for the company. You go to work, you're the hero kind of thing. And you're like, dang, I'm getting ahead big time. But like something else will kind of falter, which won't show itself right away, you know? And then mm -hmm. when you, like how you say, get flanked, you're like, dang, my health just flanked. You, you got to get focused on all fronts. Continuing on, an economic success of our own can lead to a military defeat of the enemy if it robs of him of essential supplies. It can become a psychological victory if it disheartens him and makes him readier to give in. On the other hand, of course, a military victory is useless if it leads to a psychological defeat. The Japanese may have done a great may have done great military damage at Pearl Harbor, but it resulted in net loss to them because of the effect of uniting the Americans in anger. Real defeats other than death are psychological in the end. That's pretty powerful. Real defeats other than death itself yeah. are just psychological, right? So they're just psychological. The enemy gives up, surrenders. You have to kill the enemy or make him surrender. There isn't any other kind of victory. If he is fanatical, you may just have to kill him. Americans would rather just get him to surrender. So this is something that's so important to remember is that if you get beat, it's psychological. If you're still alive, it's just a psychological defeat. You just need to reframe it. Yeah. And how are you going to come back and win next time? Yeah. Psychological warfare is the newest arm in war. It is directed at opinion, belief, confidence, courage, and the will to fight. It is both defensive and offensive for it tries to build up morale in our people and troops and to break down the morale of the enemy. The chief weapon of psychological warfare is propaganda. The radio and the press are used to bolster on the home front. The enemy is reached by newspapers and leaflets dropped from airplanes and by shortwave radio. Propaganda, in spite of what many people think, is not necessarily dishonest. Truth is often the best propaganda, especially when it is fed to persons who are starving for it. The most effective propaganda must be founded on fact, must start from some important event that actually happened and is known to be true. Then the propagandist interprets the event, much as a good lawyer interprets evidence in favor of his client, or as the honest advertiser makes a claim for his product. This is another 
very important part when you're in a leadership position. How much of being a leader is making sure that the propaganda gets out there? Have you ever heard this expression when someone says, uh, you know, you're not really good at telling your story? Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard that before? Yes. Like, a, like a company, they're, they're out there trying to do great things, and they are. They're working hard and they're having some, some successes, but nobody knows it. Mm-hmm. And I, when I work with companies, there's sometimes the companies, no one even inside the companies knows about the successes that they're having. Mm-hmm. They're failing to even spread the word within their own company. Mm-hmm. And so they think they're getting you know, crushed by the, by the competitors because they're not because the competitors guess what the competitors great at propaganda mm-hmm. every time the the the, the uh, competitor signs a new client they put out a big uh, LinkedIn post right yeah, yeah. they put in a big social media blast hey we're just the sign right. no it's great to welcome aboard our newest client mm-hmm. meanwhile you know a company's not doing that and yeah. so everyone inside the company doesn't know that we're signing all these new clients yeah. so this idea of propaganda is is very important yeah. In warfare, huh. and in leadership, and in business. Yeah, and at the same time, you might have heard about this. Probably have. You know how? I think it was Facebook, maybe Instagram. I forget. But they did like some study where it, like it actually was linked to people getting depressed because of that. And it's this this con that concept that you just said, where <laughs> you know people. And this is nothing new. Where where people they'll post just their highlights of their life. You oh know? Yeah, yeah. And then like me as just a normal person, I'm looking at everyone else's highlights of their life, thinking, <laughs> "Dang, I don't live that kind of life. I'm yeah. not traveling to Thailand and yeah. you know all these places. And maybe I do, but that was like once last year. And this, you know, yeah. it seemed so it kind of that it's it's like propaganda, maybe yeah. on purpose, sometimes oh, maybe not. But it's like yeah, it's like the the perception, you know. Where yeah. you have you know your life, and it's like the highlights are like one out of a thousand. Yeah. And meanwhile, <laughs> everyone else seemingly is one out of one. Yeah, it's just all highlights. They're just having another sushi restaurant tonight. <laughs> yeah, with exactly. a bunch of girls. Oh yeah, and a Lamborghini. Yeah, Lamborghini, all that stuff, man. And it's like everyone. Yeah, except me. Yeah. you know. So it's kind of that feeling. But Echo Charles, he's not. <laughs> Whatever, bro. I'm yeah. not gonna fall for it. I'm not gonna fall for it. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. And that stuff does it does build up. It does and that's like propaganda in your own life. Now yeah. believe me, I'm not recommending that you do good propaganda on your Instagram to show your positive <laughs> life. No. Yeah. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying don't believe the hype. Military psychology. Psychological warfare is not, however, the only way which psychology contributes to success in combat. There are hundreds of others, and soldiers and officers need to know what psychologists know and what psychological methods can find out. For instance, soldiers need to understand men in order to understand themselves and their comrades. And officers must learn how to interpret and influence the conduct of those for whom they are responsible. So this is exactly what I say all the time. If you want to be a good leader, you got to understand people. The soldier must know about human needs, motives, and emotions, about fear, when it comes, what to do about it, about anger, when it is useful, when it makes trouble, about zest, which is the core of good morale in a unit, about anxiety and the sense of insecurity, about indignation against the enemy and irritation against comrades, about the relation of food and of sex to military life. He should know also of the relation of all these things to morale and thus learn how to avoid bad morale and to build up good morale. Clearly, 
and this is not just true for combat, this is true for life. Every soldier ought to understand further the problems of the mental adjustment of men, first to the army, later to combat. Why men feel insecure, what makes for courage, the signs of approaching breakdown, how to prevent breakdown, and what to do about it when it happens. The selection and training of leaders for the army has become one of the most important problems in the, psycholo- in the psychology of war. Not enough is known about it, but what is known to some should be known to all. The good leader is the man who builds up morale. How does he do it? What kind of man must he be? If he is a poor leader, can he become a better one? And there are mobs and panics to be understood too. Civilian mobs and panics may be the concern of the soldier when the populace gets mixed up with the fighting or when the enemy's home front begins to break. Panics may, moreover, occur in well-disciplined troops if all the conditions for panic are present. What are these conditions? Why are seasoned troops panicked less than green troops? The army place each man with his talents where he will be used to his best advantage, but each individual must know how to get the most out of his talents. The primitive fact of combat is that man pushes when he encounters an obstacle to the achievement of his desire, pushes more if blocked, gets angry if still thwarted, and then fights but to this fighting he eventually brings all of the knowledge and skill that has made him supreme among the animals. He fights by learning how to use his eyes at night and learning how to arrange a system that will let him hear inside of an airplane. He fights by selecting good leaders and good truck drivers. He fights by understanding human nature in order to build up good morale that will overcome fear. He fights by saying the right thing in the right way to the right people at the right time. And sometimes that is propaganda. He uses every resource of science and intelligence, including psychology. He has to, for this is total war. I love thinking about that. About every aspect of your life is to be prepared for total war, which, by the way, you're in. Mm. You know, you might not be in combat at this moment in time, but you're fighting. Mm -hmm. You're fighting all the time, and you have to bring every asset, every resource that you have available. You have to bring it to fight because this is total war. Now, the book goes into some pretty big sections right here. One of them is sight as a weapon or sight as a weapon and then, and then hearing as a tool. And it literally talks about how to see better things you can do to make your night vision better, how to preserve your night vision, how to see sharper, just all those kind of things. So it talks about camouflage and stuff, real tactical stuff. And then it talks about hearing and what you need to hear and how you can adjust your hearing and how to listen sharply. And I'm gonna go. I'm not gonna talk about the sight piece, but I'm gonna talk about the noise. There's just some interesting points about noise. Loud sounds, especially when they are sudden and strange, are natural causes of fear. Many sounds are terrifying. 
A sudden loud noise like the discharge of a pistol will make anyone blink and jump. It will startle them. This is true even of well-trained men who pride themselves on their familiarity with firearms. It is an instantaneous response that may be all over before the eye can see it. It shows up, however, in slow motion pictures. Seasoned troops get so that they don't appear to pay any particular attention to the din of battle. Even horses will stand still under the rising roar of a diving bomber will only toss a head impatiently. The experienced soldier, on the other hand, needs first to become adapted to the noises of war. He must be exposed to them in training as much as possible. After the noise has become familiar, its loudness will not affect him so greatly in combat. Control over noise makes it less fearful. You don't mind the noise of gunfire so much as you are the one who is doing the shooting. So talking about getting people used to the the loud noises that you're going to come up against. And this is something that we used to do. I don't even know if guys do it anymore because it's probably not that smart. But we used to do immediate action drills with no ear protection in. So we'd get used to shooting guns and having all that just massively loud noise. We wouldn't do it every time, but we would do several runs with no ear protection. This is now in current times, guys have these nice headsets that have noise, they're noise canceling headsets, so they're actually pretty awesome. So it's not that big of a deal anymore. But back in the day, they wanted to make sure hey, you got to realize how loud this is going to be if you get in a firefight. If you get in your first firefight and you've never had a an M60 machine gun two feet away from your ear getting crazy, laying down a hundred round belts, it'll be a shock to your system. So yeah. that's what, and, and not to mention, they're hucking you know, grenade simulators at you and, and artillery simulators. So there's explosions going off because that's what, that's what they're trying to do, get you used to that scenario. Men subjected to the excessive noises of war over a long period sometimes build up an oversensitiveness any sort of loud sharp report they are in the state of a man with a hangover the bang of a door will make them jump a loud shout is painful the noise of a truck exhaust is frightening in the hospitals where men are convalescing from bad cases of these war nerves the dropping of a pan will startle a ward full of sleeping men so violently that the jerk will bring them out of their sleep and even out of their beds and onto the floor but this state of nerves, though linked in their minds with the noise and produced by the noise, is due mainly to more disturbing things that have become associated with the noise. Noise is just as loud and originally just as distressing as the noises of war if they are only just a part of everyday work or fun are tolerated. Men become used to the din of a boiler factory or a pneumatic drill. It may deafen them, but it does not demoralize them. So that's pretty obvious, right? Mm-hmm. What's, what's making these noises horrible to you is because every time a bomb goes off, you see your friends get blown up and killed and you're afraid that the same thing's gonna happen to you. Whereas a pneumatic drill, is just making a bunch of noise so you're not that worried about it. <clears throat> this was, uh, again, there's a lot of real basic information. You can imagine this book being issued to frontline troops, but I had to call this one out here too. Sooner or later, most soldiers have the experience of getting lost. In heavy woods or jungle, it is possible to get lost a few yards, just a few yards off the trail. It gives a man a peculiar, helpless feeling. You are so accustomed all your life to knowing where you are 
and who you are and about what time it is that the feeling of not knowing one of these things comes as a great shock. And then it goes on a little further. It says, a compass is a big help. And I was like, "Mm, yeah, (laughs) yes, it is indeed. Here's another real Captain Obvious. It is best to have a map in your pocket when you get lost. If you can't have one, then you ought to see one before you get into strange country. So that's real obvious too. The more a soldier knows about maps, the better equipped he is for combat duty. His training in how to read them and what to look for on them if he keeps practicing it, should enable him to find himself if he ever gets lost in any terrain he knows from a map. And the reason I called that part out is, think about all the situations that you get in where you have the opportunity to gather some intelligence before you go into them. You know, if you're going for a job interview, what can you know about that company? If you're going to meet with a client you've never met with before, how much information can you have? You, well, these days, you can Google someone, you get all kinds of information. Yeah. You go to their LinkedIn account, and you can find out where they went to school and what sport they played or whatever. You go to their Facebook page. You go to their, you pull up articles that were written about them, and there's all kinds of intelligence you can gather. There's no reason to go into a meeting blind anymore without knowing the terrain that you're getting into, without understanding the culture that you're going into. There's no reason for it. Next, work in the army is much more than just shouldering a rifle and doing long foot marches. Soldiers work at several hundred different kinds of fighting jobs and at even more kinds of jobs, some directly related to combat and some not, which can be filled with men already trained for them or men who have the necessary aptitude for learning one of the jobs quickly. All leaders have the responsibility for seeing that the right man gets the right job and when mistakes are made, that misfits are transferred. And this thing is, this is where this book gets pretty politically incorrect. It's basically saying, look, some people can't do these jobs. And some people aren't fit for these jobs and some people aren't fit for these other jobs. Mm-hmm. Continuing on, thousands know how to drive a tractor, how to repair an ignition system. Others can weld castings, repair watches, other timing instruments or road transits, keep accounts, carve carcasses of beef, develop fo- photographs. The army needs many men who can do these things. The British found that out in the First World War. At first, they neglected to save their specialists. They sent to the front professional men, engineers, and men in skilled trades. Many were killed in the early months of the war. Later, the need for them in special posts behind the line became acute. So, yeah, this is all about forming up an army of civilians that have skills and saying, oh, you've been a truck driver for whatever, for six years in the civilian sector, guess what you're gonna do for us? You're gonna drive a truck. Oh, you're a butcher, guess what? We need butchers. And right on down the line, and you can imagine World War One, probably them being very short-sighted on how long that war was gonna last, and like, oh, oh, you're a, a mechanic? Cool, we're just gonna send you to the front with everyone else, mm-hmm. and you're gonna die like everyone else. And you look up in six months or a year, and they don't have the necessary support logistically Mm. to carry on the war. Mm. How soldiers differ. Men differ just as much in ability to learn different sorts of duties as they do in size of feet, in height, or in weight. Some are as much as three times as able as others. I like that. Hey, some people are just three times more capable than you. That's the way it is. Most, of course, are just about average. 
Some men cannot learn a a three-figure telephone number by hearing it once. Some can learn as many as nine figures. The average is around six or seven. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever heard that the reason our numbers are seven no. digits long is because that's about the average that a human can memorize? Dang, no, I yeah. haven't, and that's very interesting. I heard reason. that. Could that possibly be not bro science, but uh, urban myth? Urban, no, yeah, could it be no urban man. legend? It could be. It's true. I like it. Yeah. I think it's awesome, actually. Well, you well you have your doctorate in bro science, so <laughs> I'm working on. It. Yes, yes. You did you do your undergrad <laughs> in? Uh, Urban legend. <laughs> uh, back to the book. Some men, starting from scratch, can learn in eight weeks to receive and send radio code at 16 words per minute. It takes others 22 weeks. Some men, used to handling certain types of machinery, can learn to handle certain kinds of weapons much faster than others. So the problem is to understand and measure aptitude. Aptitude is potential skill, the capacity for learning to do something quickly and accurately when given the chance to learn. Both speed and accuracy are important in learning. A soldier needs to learn rapidly, but also to be accurate at what he's learned. And men differ differ from one to another in both ways. For one thing, Men differ greatly in the speed with which they learn. Some aviation cadets can solo solo after four hours of instruction. Others are not allowed to solo even after 14 hours. Here the quick learners are urgently needed. Slow learners tie up the training planes too long. Besides, quick learning might mean a shorter war. Yet the army cannot do without the slow learners. Manpower is needed. And there are many military jobs which require other qualities than speed of learning, jobs which the slow learners will prefer to have. Men also differ in speed and accuracy of reaction. The average driver requires from one half to three quarters of a second to put on the brakes after the stoplight goes red. Yet some can apply the brakes in three tenths of a second. Others use up to a whole second. These are important differences for riflemen and machine gunners as well as for truck drivers every tenth of a second counts in battle you ever see that thing when they were um they were doing like the speed tests for conor mcgregor Mm-mm. and he was the he was the fastest athlete they had tested speed like reaction kind of yep, speed, like reaction time like when you see something you touch a button or whatever you know yeah. whatever they have these little tests set up yeah and apparently mcgregor was the fastest athlete that they had tested Dang, which that's is crazy yeah it is crazy yeah it is crazy because you know some of these baseball players and i guess i think well, that, i think that would be the do you think that would be the fastest hand-eye coordination? Seem, yeah, I mean, yeah, I off the top know, of my head, it seems like it. I mean, because those balls come quick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a test you can do when we're kids, what, how they do it. <laughs> you know, in science class, mm-hmm. you hold, one guy holds Bro a ruler. Science class? No, 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 real <laughs> science. You know, they, you get a ruler. Oh, yeah, yeah, and you then drop you, it. One, yeah, the teacher holds it, and then you put, put he puts it on your finger, you know, mm-hmm. between your fingers, right at the mm-hmm. at the zero mark. Yep. He drops it, and how quick you can... How far do your fingers have to be opened? I don't know. Because it seems like that could be an advantage. A little so bit, yeah. So my huh? grandfather used to do this, it was called the dollar drop. Oh, okay. And he would fold a dollar lengthwise, yeah. only to make it kind of aerodynamic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you could catch the dollar, you could 
you could keep it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? Yes, sir, it does. Some people can't catch that dollar. Yeah, so it's the re- yeah. So you think if you're, uh, you know, how you're saying, you just said uh, how far your fingers. Yeah. The thing is, for the experiment, mm-hmm. as long as you designate kind of that, you know, yeah. or even eyeball it, it yeah. you know, it, it might be a millimeter difference, mm-hmm. but you know, usually it's like. It's but there's always those people that are looking for that edge, right? Sure, there is, Jocko. Yes, because I'm is. thinking I would be. <laughs> Figuring out how, because I used to do that with a dollar drop, right? I'd get my fingers here. Yes, that makes sense. When the, you know the dollar yeah. drop has more stakes for sure. High stakes. Even though you pr- pulls out that fiber. <laughs> <laughs> you were probably the guy in science class who wanted to win, though. Even though it wasn't a competition. Of course, it's a competition. <laughs> there you go. So, and I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure that that stuff can be trained as well, and that's yeah. one thing that. Um, you know, when, you, when you're bringing your kids up, you bring hmm. them up and you make them play multiple different sports. You don't focus yeah. them too young because they become, they don't, they don't develop the broader athletic skills. Yeah, it makes sense. So you're supposed to get them involved in a bunch of different sports. Hmm. And those kids will end up, even if you took one kid and you say, oh, you're just going to do 100% football this whole life. And you took another kid and you did multiple sports. And, but you did like a little bit more of a focus on football. Mm-hmm. The chances are, the kid that did multiple sports but focused on football is going to do better than the kid that just did football. Huh. From what I understand, yeah. I'm sure there's some bro science people out there that will uh, object to my statement. Well, it makes sense, you know. Where you brought more broadly athletic. Yeah, like you can, and pretty, I'd imagine you'd be able to learn quicker too because your body is used to moving yeah. in different ways rather than just the one yeah. way. Because you know? what are you going to do when things are a little bit different out on the football field, right? Yeah. There's a little. Th- situations that can unfold and if you're athletically adept at adapting to various situations you're going to be better off yeah it's true going on men differ also in the speed and accuracy of perceiving one clerk can check in five minutes a company roster that takes another man 20 minutes some men can see a white target in the dark 400 yards away to others it is invisible at 200 yards range finders differ in their ability to tell the distances of different objects when the job is seeing you must choose the best seers so that's interesting because you could have someone that has bad reactions but they can see really well and if you ever read i'm sure at some point we'll do chuck yeager's book on here matter of fact chuck yeager's on twitter I don't know if you know that, but Chuck Yeager's on Twitter, and I've gone back and forth a couple times. People have said, come on the podcast, but in his podcast, or in his book, Yeager, he just had incredible vision. Like, he'd be flying in formation, and he could see the enemy way before anyone else could see the enemy. He'd be like, oh, bogey's at 4 o'clock, boom, we go, and because his eyesight was apparently just amazing, and that used to be a big deal for fighter pilots. I think it's less of a big deal now. Because you got radar and and all that, so it's not as big of a deal as it used to be. Just your eyes against the enemy's eyes. Back to the book. There is, however, much more to a good soldier than speed and accuracy with which he learns, acts, and perceives. Every man has interests, likes, and dislikes. These determine in part what he will do well and how fast he will improve. A man's interests, for for instance, usually determine what he will do with what he learns. Mere exposure to training never made a skilled soldier. 
it is the interested man who remembers and profits by his training and is ready to apply it to new situations. Right? So true. So true. How true? It's just so true. So true. We don't, and, and what I think is really important about this from a business perspective is what they're basically saying is put the right people in the right jobs. Yeah. That's the overall concept to put the right people in the right jobs. That's what you need to do. Yeah. If you've got someone that might not be super talented, but they're, they're very interested, they're probably the better hire than someone that's just got a bunch of talent but doesn't care. In fact, yeah. I'll go ahead and say they straight up are the better hire. Yeah. Yeah, cause it, and then they'll they'll wind up learning like so quick and your specific thing. Yeah. You know, your specific they're, thing. They're into it. Yeah. If someone that's not into it, that's that's bad. Oh, like someone who has like a, a major like degree and you know, his resume is beyond huge, the degree, but, but like, hey, I'm really into whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, like for instance, I mean. you like making videos. You're into it, right? Sure, sure. If you didn't like making them, if you got no enjoyment from it. Think of how horrible it would be to trying to get you to do it. I mean, it's pretty hard yeah. to get you to do a video right now and you actually <laughs> like doing it. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, like um, like politics, right? You know how like some people, they like politics, some people don't. So you get someone who likes politics and the news yeah. comes on, they're going to be all up in there learning everything what's going on like today, you know? Then someone who's not, they're like, oh, the news is on. Let me watch. Like, yeah. You know? Well, that's an interesting, I thought you were going to say that people that are into because I actually, that's one case where I would disagree because a lot of times people that really like politics, you don't want them in politics because they're just political machines, right? Yeah. You want a normal person. Oh, yeah. You yeah. want just a normal everyday. You don't want the person that's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be president. Yeah. I'm going to be I'm going to be in charge. They, like that person, you don't want right. to be president. Yeah, yeah. You want I the person it. that's like, look, I don't really want to do this. Yeah, and I think, yeah, that's different. Because someone that's all hungry for the political life they're they're a they're a arrogant person that thinks that they should be in charge of anything like, no yeah i meant, i meant like on tv like so like me if i if i watch um i don't know like Hawaii okay Five-0. so <laughs> well that's kind of a good example cuz i'm interested in hawaii you oh, know? Yeah, yeah. so you know i'm going to like but like okay so on so i make videos right i do some some visual effects whatever there's a YouTube channel called Video Copilot, mm-hmm. right? So all it's it's mainly just tutorials on how to do stuff. That's all it is, really. Mm-hmm. So when that like if a new video comes out or something, man, I'm all up in there, mm-hmm. all up in it. But you don't care, bro. You're gonna watch that thing and you're gonna you're gonna you're not even gonna click on it. Not even close. No, See what I'm saying? unless I was like, hmm, I wonder if I want to take Echo's job. Yeah. <laughs> or okay. So but, not, okay. Case in point. I'm not interested. Right. So, so I could barely even get through one of those videos that's what before I'd be like, no, I'm going to go over here and do burpees. Yeah, exactly. So you're going to click on that video. If I say, hey, Jocko, click on this video. Yeah. This will make, uh, you know, you're brought in your horizon. I don't know, whatever. Click on this video and just watch the whole thing. Watch it five times, actually. Yeah. Bro, when you're done watching it five times, bro, everything went over your head. Yeah, don't care. Bro, you don't even care. So advice from this book is put people that are interested in the job, truly inherently interested, and they're going to do a better work even than maybe someone that's more talented than, than they are. Mm-hmm. Back to the book. Other personal differences besides interests and likes and dislikes are important, especially for some military tasks. One may feel 
One man may feel completely at ease in the transparent cage in which a bombardier must sit, while another, ordinarily dexterous, is so upset in the exposed position that the pupils of his eyes dilate, his fingers fumble, and he cannot manipulate the bomb sight properly. <laughs> so there you go. You got a guy that's probably a better, maybe he has quicker reaction times, but he's just scared to be inside the turret. Yeah, yeah. Two equally wise officers may not be equally good leaders. One is at ease with his men, talking with them freely, getting their slant on matters of importance, and giving his orders and directions readily. The other, although he wants his men to like him and respond alertly and willingly to him as a leader, cannot bring himself to feel free and confident with them and open up with them in a way to gain their confidence and liking in turn. The first is, of course, the better leader. So there there you go. That's like straight up, hey, this person, if you're more comfortable talking to your troops, they're going to sense that and you're going to be better than someone that's not comfortable talking to the troops. Mm. Indeed, leadership is the quality that the army most needs. All advancement brings with it responsibility, and responsibility for the conduct of others requires leadership. That's interesting, because what's interesting about that is that is, and it goes into this later on, talking about the, we probably won't cover it until the next podcast on this book, but talking about the, you know, are leaders born or made? And this is clearly leaning a little bit towards born. Yeah. Clearly. Which I agree with. I think leaders are born and made. Yeah. Both. And, and it feels like a lot of times when people use the expression, are they born? Whether it be leaders, whether it be whatever. You know, he's a natural whatever. Um, I get the expression and I understand and, and agree, of course. But... Technically, like if you say if a leader is made or born, born meaning like he wasn't trained at a very specific point to be a leader. He brought to the training or to the position just a bunch of like talent or whatever. But he probably learned that through like his life, what he was exposed to, what he was, you know, true. But there are certain aptitudes that people have and those play an impact. Yeah. So if you have somebody that's really articulate, they're going to make a better right. leader than someone that's not articulate. But even someone who's if articulate, someone, they they learn that through sort of life. There's no possibly, like, but some of it. Maybe they have like a shorter tongue or something. <laughs> because it has to be genetic, is what I'm saying. That's like what genetic, I'm saying. I don't know if there's an articulate gene. There is an articulate gene for sure. Well, it's not a gene; it's your brain. How much capacity do you have to process words quickly and assemble them together into sentences and put them out into a comprehensible statement? How can you do that? How well can you do that? Yeah, but you're not born knowing how to talk. I guess, yeah, it is no, like a processor. You have the, yeah, you have what, yeah, that's it. Like a little what, processor. What, what processor, what size processor do you have in your in your brain? Do you yeah. got the old 486? No, nope, nope, but... <laughs> Or no. you got the new Pentium, whatever. No, I don't Pentium know, Pentium is probably like because 10 years old now, isn't it? The Pentium. <laughs> no, it's like an i7 or i9. I have no it's, idea. Anyway, but no, because there's articulate people who don't talk fast. Or don't. Yeah, then, no, about, yeah, yeah. They, right, they're right, able right. to assemble their... Okay, here's yeah. another one. And this one's... And I've talked about these before, but... The ability to look at complex problems and simplify them. Yeah. Sure, yeah. some of that is learned. Yeah. Some people just are born with it. Yeah. Some yeah. people learn it in the streets. The streets. 
<laughs> yeah, I think uh, my, my, my I'm drawing back on my bro science uh, background, oh, and yeah. I I do think I believe I'm under I believe it all. It's a belief that you get it from like life, like you get some of it, most life, of it. But I guarantee, I if you take someone that had a twin brother, yeah. and and you one of them would be more apt at some things than the other one. There's got to be some things that you are better at than your brother, naturally, and some things that your brother's better at than you. I don't know of any, but the, I mean, put it this way, all the differences that we have, I feel like I can map it back to why. Because just being second born, I was born a little bit smaller too. Mm-hmm. Now look at me, like I'm bigger. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to be bigger. And especially people would compare too. You know, like growing mm-hmm. up with a twin brother, they always compare. Yeah. They're like, oh, he's a little bit taller oh, than you the right there. Oh, there's skinny and, one. Yes, or Michael whatever. Charles. Oh yeah. They ain't trade. saying that no more, are they, boy? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, the point is, I'm not saying I'm not saying you're. I think you're probably right, of course, but <laughs> I think it's mostly learned, bro. People have a certain genetic cognitive capacity, without question. Yeah, that's not even debatable. Yes, I would not debate that. So what we're talking about is the ability to take that cognitive capacity and steer it towards the articulation of language. If you have more cognitive capacity, you'll be able to articulate language better. And there's probably little modules inside the brain that are genetic that have even more capacity for the grabbing and assembling of linguistic patterns together where they flow off the tongue rapidly and sensibly. And there's got to be part of your brain that's better at that just genetically. Now, of course, if you spend a lot of time in that arena, you will get better at it over time. But there's got to be some, just like you have X amount of fast twitch muscle and Echo Charles, like how hard did you work at your vertical jump? Did you guys test that in football? Yes. Okay. What was the highest vertical jump you ever had? 39 and a half okay. inches. That's pretty good, right? Yes. Is there, were there people on your team that worked harder than you, if not harder, that never got to 39 and a half inches? Probably yes. Actually, yes. Affirmative. I, yeah, because I didn't really work. Exactly. Yeah. I knew this was a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, sir. So someone, there was someone on your team that they they worked and they trained and they were doing jump yeah. squats and yeah. Bulgarian lunges and split squats and they were just trying to get that vertical jump up. They were wearing remember those shoes with like the, the oh, toes yeah. on them, uh, yes, right? Sir. Yeah. Get them hops. <laughs> Want to get them hops? So this yeah. guy had all those things, and yes. you know what he got to thirty two inches, right? And yeah. he was he, he was bummed. Yeah, but but that's what I'm saying. Yes, he yeah. has a yeah. certain genetic capability there's physical capabilities that are genetic and there's some some mental capabilities that are genetic and both of them have a max capacity and that dude with the the toe shoes for vertical jump improvement that wore them awesome there was a kid one time he lived across the street from me he you know he's young he was this is when I was probably 25. I was in the day. It was back in the day. Yep. But this kid trained all summer long yeah. with those shoes. And he was, he, what he wanted to do was dunk a basketball. Yeah. And he did it. You yeah. know, he did it eventually. But he, he worked hard. 
There's some people that don't even have to work hard; they can dunk on basketball. Yeah, they just got it. Yeah, man. Right? So, yeah, man. My friend Cake Nuts, who I mentioned, can Cake Nuts dunk? No, we're talking oh. about some some different attribute now. Um, he was he always had like kind of like f- big. It's called big muscle bellies, like the part of your muscle. Anyway, he had kind of big muscles, genetic. He was a thinner mm-hmm. guy, but and he was always cut. So even into adulthood, mm-hmm. he wouldn't have to watch his diet. Mm-hmm. You know. Meanwhile, if like a normal person, if you watch your diet like a lot, then you can get that cut. You mm-hmm. can get there. Oh yeah, I totally can. But cake nuts, pff, he's just cruising. He's just got <laughs> shred abs. You know. And then he like lifts a bunch of weights yeah. over the summer. What's workout I gave him, by the way? And he lifts a bunch. He comes back and he's just huge, still cut, by the yeah. way. So it's like. Damn, yeah. But, you know, he just has it like that. There you go. Genetic genetic differences. And that's what they're talking about in yeah. this book. And I think sometimes people's attitude nowadays is like, well, you know, you, you can do whatever you want. Well, it's like, no, actually, you should yeah. find out what's good for you. Yeah. That's what you should look for. Yeah. Like, I was a radio man. Yeah. You know, it's like a radio man. Why? Because I was like smart, but I was big enough to carry a radio, right? Yeah. If the small guys in the SEAL platoon, they become the point man because yeah. you don't have to carry any extra weight generally. Yeah, it's so, you're so right. Like so right. And consider like major um, industries and we'll just say sports, right? Where mm. it's like it's pretty clear when you win, you win. When you lose, you lose. Sports, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So get the established sports. Mm-hmm. With very, very few exceptions, this is going to be the case. You're going to get, like, okay, football, because there's a bunch of positions that do very different things. The tight end, he's going to be a certain build, generally speaking. For sure. The quarterback, he's going to be a certain build, and the receiver, he's going to be a certain build. The center and the line, mm-hmm. certain build. Like, you grab a guy from the line, guard, right, one of the guys on the line. You put mm-hmm. him on defense as, like, a cornerback or something mm-hmm. who needs literally opposite attributes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, should do that. See what happens. Oh, no, no, no. Just train him. Yeah. Train him for 10 years. No. No. Negative. Probably make him better, but you yeah. won't make him successful. Exactly right. So it's, like, it's such a clear example just because there's more on the line with that, you know? So if you're a youngster, you should look at your attributes and see, number one, where your attributes fit and then what your interests are. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people get they're super interested and so they just try for it anyways, yeah, you know, and, and, and that's cool. It, yeah, that's cool. There's there's some people that would get really good at a sport, but they're still not good enough to go pro because they don't have the genetic yeah. gifts that are needed. Yeah. And that's why it's so prevalent. It's such a like big deal when you do find the like the super rare guy where it's like, hey, he's not really genetically gifted, but he works so hard. That he made it yeah, to the yeah, pros. For sure. And that's typically legit. that's like a guy in basketball who's like not tall, not fast. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the Muggsy that kind of guy. Yeah, but he was he was pretty fast though. And he could jump. Well, well, but he's small. Yes. You know what's interesting? I was talking to Dallas, who's the coach of the Gulls, the San the Diego Gulls, Gulls hockey yes. team. But a few years ago, not very long, the hockey had become all these big giant guys. You know, 6'4", 6'5", 260 pounds, these big monster guys. And that's where everyone had started going in that direction. All the teams were just getting bigger and bigger because these guys are massive. They can hit hard. And then recently, it started going back again to guys that were smaller and quicker and could move faster. Hmm. So that's an interesting evolution. But you can look at it. You could have looked at it, you know, four years ago or whatever it was. I don't really know. But 10 years ago or whatever, when if you were 5'11", you're like, oh, man, I'm not big enough to play pro hockey. But some kids were like, you know what? I'm 5'11". I'm going to be fast. I'm going to be faster than everyone. Okay, yeah. cool. And they made it. Yeah. And now they're in the game. 
Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with like the the necessities of being a good hockey player or or team as mm. far as the physical attributes. Um, but like f- football, I use that be- that example because the the jobs of each position are so different. I mean, not each position, but like the differences between you know like a cornerback, wide receiver, and then the difference between that and like a lineman. Mm. Oh so yeah, the yeah, physical totally attributes different. Yeah. So like basketball is different, even though they they have different positions. Where everyone has sort of, um, generally speaking, of course, there's mm-hmm. exceptions, but everyone's gonna be tall. No one's gonna be like slow. If you're like slow, it's yeah. like that's a big kind of deal, you know. So everyone's a little bit more uniform. Yeah, the hockey they're, seems they're the more, same way. Yeah, more uniform. Hockey's more uniform. Seal platoon is not uniform because yeah. you got a big sixty gunner. Yeah, big pig gunner. Yeah, that makes sense. And, but but you know what? Not all pig gunners are big. Yeah, because you can just be a tough, hundred and sixty-two pound pig yeah, gunner. Just can go. Just, just, get, go. just can, can grind it out. Yeah. Point man's usually a little bit smaller, hmm. but that's but when you get to a SEAL team, guys look at you and you're like, oh, you're you're five seven, you're 140 pounds, you're gonna be a point man. That's the way it's yeah. gonna work. Yeah, yeah. Most of the time, Makes sometimes sense. you get a pl- pl- in a platoon and they're like, we already got a point man, dude. You're gonna carry a pig. Here you go, buck up and start doing some squats, boy. <laughs> All right. Personality. It takes more than brains to make a good soldier. It takes guts. It takes endurance. It takes a willingness to do hard work. It takes a, a keen interest in doing the job well. Psychologists wish they could give the army right now a method of measuring these important personality assets. Tests that would be as accurate and reliable as a test for measuring the ability to do arithmetic or aptitude for learning radio code. They can't. Some tests have been tried. Many have been found useless. Few are promising. You know what's interesting? I just thought of this. I went to communication school, the the SEAL communication school, and we had to learn Morse code. And there was, was probably 20 guys in my comms course. And we all had to learn Morse code. And this was very clear that some people were better at it than others. Yeah. Because you had to, and we didn't have to send very fast, we, but we had to be able to receive oh, yeah. like a certain amount of groups. It's called a group. It's five five letters in a group. Yeah. And they would just come at you. And you had to be able to receive and write down what the letters were yeah. with no mistakes. But what's interesting is we all showed up. No one knew any Morse code when we showed up. Yeah. And there was a complete bell curve when we got done. You know, hmm. some guys were really good at it naturally. Some guys were horrible at it, and it took every ounce of mental power for them to figure out and get to be able to pass the test. Yeah. And I had a crazy guy that was teaching the comm school, and someone would be like, "Hey, um, chief, why do we have to learn, you know, Morse code since no one uses it anymore?" And he'd say, uh, in the event of a nuclear holocaust, Morse code is the only thing that's going to be punching through the ionosphere. <laughs> and of Dang. course, I was 18 years old, and I was like, oh, dude, that's right. <laughs> right on. I was, you know, yeah. My interest was peaked. Yeah. I was like, hey, in the event of a nuclear holocaust, I'm going to be on the HF radio hammering out Morse code to yeah. the troops, letting them know what's up. <laughs> yeah. Well, that makes sense, That's how too. stupid I was. <laughs> what, wait, what do you mean? So what? You, you don't agree with that now? Dude, if there's a nuclear holocaust, I wouldn't be alive. Well, what if you would be dead. But you, you know, what if you're like one of the only survivors, or yeah. survivors like me? But so, that, man, that's interesting. That that where you'd have to. I mean, that small little thing that you just said, where you have to. It's less about p- 
inputting it out. It's more about receiving. Because yep. Morse code, you don't communicate necessarily. No, no, no. You no. just got to pick here's it up the reasoning, it Here's the reasoning behind it. If you want to send Morse code, you can send it whatever yeah, pace you want, you want because yeah. the people are just going to sit there and take the letters <laughs> that you're sending, right? Yeah. They're not saying hurry up. Right. So you can send it whatever pace you want, but mm. receiving, mm. you got to be ready. Yeah, and I forget what the minimum standard, I think, well, I want to say it was 20 groups a minute or something like that. Yeah. What, to pass? You mean like To pass be passing. Through. And I forget, yeah. I forget. But we weren't as good as like a regular Navy guy yeah. who would just be, I don't even know what, but they were way faster. We were yeah. like knuckle draggers compared yeah. to them. They're but like we a had, language. But we had to learn it every day. And you had to do it every day until you test it out. Huh. And some people test it out in a few weeks. Some people didn't test out until the, you know, the last days Sitting That's there doing crazy. Morse code. Do you some. um do you do you still know Morse code? Not really. What if it came in at like beep? No, beep. I would need to brush up on it. Yeah, I would yeah. need to brush up on it, and which I need to do because if there is a nuclear holocaust, yeah, I want to be you know ready to get comms out, HF comms. Yeah, and receive them, of course, you know. Yeah, check. But it, it's such a clear example of, and the guys, it wasn't like. On that bell curve of guys that were good and bad, it wasn't like everyone that was a good seal was up at the top, yeah. and the guys that weren't good at Morse code were bad seals. No, it was like some of the guys were awesome guys and they sucked at Morse code, yeah. and some guys were marginal guys, but they were great at Morse code. Yeah, and there's a perfect example. Like, what do you do with that guy? Well, put him in a, make him a radio man. You know? Yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty, that's interesting. Yeah, Cake Nuts when he when he was going through, I think it was Buds. No, 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 it was it was after Buds. He he kept saying like, man, actually, my other friend Jeremy was telling me that oh yeah, Cake he's good at like pretty much everything. Yeah, he's, he's just really good at stuff yeah. except for picking locks. Yeah, he was like See? struggling with like there picking locks, which is kind of a random thing to struggle with. When picking locks is is a difficult thing, and it's a. Uh, it's more like playing a musical instrument yeah. than it is like doing a technical skill where you do A, B, C, and you get D. Yeah. No. Picking locks is like you got to feel for it. <laughs> little art. Yeah. you got to feel for it. And I've been with guys. I was okay at picking locks. Yeah. The guy that I learned from was he could walk up and put the, you know, walk up to a doorknob and stand not facing it yeah. and just stand there and just pick the lock open in seconds. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Kind of like on that, that movie, The Italian Job. You ever watch that? No. Yeah, it's a good one. So no. this girl, she was like the safe cracker, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they're like a, a den of thieves. They're this group of thieves. Mm -hmm. they do. So she was the safe cracker. Uh -huh. Guess what her dad was? Master a lock safe break. cracker. You know, so it was like a genetic thing. They were good. You know, so she, the dad passed it on to the, yeah. you know, it's like genetic. Some people, that's how, you know. Yeah, Maybe. The learned behavior as well that she learned from the old man. Yes, All right, going is. on back to the book. One trouble is that a man's person. This is important. One trouble is that a man's personality changes in different situations. For instance, the man who is brave as a lion in the test room at a reception center may not be so brave when he gets into combat. The man who is able to make quick decisions wisely when things are quiet may go to pieces when he is distracted by machine gun fire and do something that result in his own death or the death of others. And difficult situations may have the reverse effects on some men. Men who have never distinguished themselves in training camp may become fired with new spirit when, going, when the going gets tough, astounding themselves and other men with what they can do in extreme emergency. So that's obviously important too. So even though you know someone, you don't even know them. Yeah. You don't know what you're going to get. You might have somebody that freaks out when things go sideways. 
Next section, training makes the soldier. When men enter the army, they are told the importance in the fighting areas of taking cover from enemy fire in slit trenches. This point is emphasized in books, lectures, training films, demonstrations, and exhibits. By the time the soldier reaches the battle zone, he has learned that he should take cover in a slit trench whenever he stops. That is one kind of learning. In one way, it is the most useful kind. With knowledge of how things should be done and why they are important, a soldier is equipped to act in new situations, and there is nothing that produces so many new situations as combat. But this kind of learning, unfortunately, does not always result in action. A soldier may know perfectly well that he should dig a trench. He may have learned it from demonstrations exactly how to go digging it. Yet, when the enemy planes come overhead, he may in his excitement forget that what he was learned. In such emergencies, he is more likely to act from habit than from reasoning and sense. Habit formation is a further stage of learning. It depends on practice, experience, and repetition. No action ever becomes automatic by learning in words how to perform it, but without actually practicing it. But by repetition, the operation of a machine or a rifle gets itself reduced to habit so that it becomes almost entirely mechanical, like walking. You do not have to think about putting your left foot forward after planting your right foot ahead. That is because you have walked so much you could, do, you could not get that way merely from listening to lectures on how to walk. If during maneuvers, a soldier practices taking cover instantly whenever he sees or hears an air attack warning or plane coming close, he, if he always throws himself flat when he first hears the sudden whistle of a shell or the singing of bullets past his ears, these actions soon become second nature to him. The particular warning sights and sounds become fixed as signals for immediate actions. In a real emergency, the soldier does not have to stop and think about what he should do. He just does it. Straightforward. That's why we roll in jujitsu. Yeah. That's why, look, drilling is important. I get it. You got to learn the move, but you got to roll. Yeah. Well, and one could argue that drilling, it serves the same purpose, just in a more like specific kind of way. It does. It does. You got to do both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, if you drill correctly, mm-hmm. but what you can't do is sit there and get shown a move. Right. Right. right? Yeah. You got to do the move. Yeah. And I used to do that too. And we'd have guys going through CQC training and a lot of times, you know, instructor might want to hear himself talk a lot and explain things because sure. you know it's a, it's a it's a pump to the ego when you get up there and you show people what's what you show how i did it sure. did it like this so you know you get an instructor that wants to hear himself talk and meanwhile they sit there and talk for 20 minutes uh the seal platoon could have done three more runs through the kill house in 20 minutes yeah. so i'll tell you what Say what you got to say, say it quick, and let the boys go pull that trigger, because that's how we get good, by doing. Back to the book. This sort of learning of minor importance in high school or college is basic in the Army. That is why drill is so important, why discipline is so essential. In war games, the soldier gets conditioned to all sights and sounds of battle. In early training, it may be possible to simulate realistically the noises of shells, dive bombers, and bursting bombs by recordings reproduced by loudspeakers. In advanced training, a soldier may be taught to lie flat on the ground while real bullets strike within a few feet, close enough to cause sand to fall on the back of his neck. He knows he is safe so long as he lies still, but if he should get up and run, he will be killed. That is good training for combat. A real bullet forms much better habits than a lecture about a bullet. 
Such thoroughly drilled habits enable the soldier to act when there is no time for thought. They ensure that he will act correctly and mechanically even when his mind is confused and thinking is almost impossible. But knowledge of the science of warfare and practice in solving novel military problems are important too because they enable the soldier to act wisely in the thousands of unexpected emergencies that arise in battle. Habit is safer than thought for standardized acts, but it won't work for brand new problems. That is why we would train our guys in brand new problems all the time. That way you get a protocol for how to, how to handle brand new problems. Right, yeah. You start to understand what you're gonna do. Oh, I don't know what's happening. What am I gonna do? A step back, I'm gonna look around, I'm gonna assess the situation. I'm gonna come up with some possible solutions. I'm gonna think about what the outcomes of those solutions are, what the risks are, and then I'm gonna make a decision. We're gonna move forward in that direction. Yeah, cause like uh, confronting or dealing with new problems or uncharted situations or whatever, mm-hmm. the skill of dealing with that is like another skill yes. in and of itself. Like I, you think you're saying this like last time. Yes. Yeah, protocol. And people were asking about protocol. Yeah. Protocol for handling new problems. Like what do you yeah. do? And eventually you get good at it. Cause uh, like, the obvious first thing is you do is you detach. Yeah. You have to take a step back. You have to turn around and look around. Yeah. Physically look around. So detach, look around, make an assessment, come up with possible solutions, think about what the outcomes of those solutions might be, and then pick the one that has the best possible outcome. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's Pretty way different than like trained level ten training. Yeah. Per- perfect training on situation A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Yeah. And Q. Because you, but you're gonna get hit with Z. Yeah, when Z hits, it's like, dang, can you, and then you totally shut down. I just down. got a message from a guy that was in a, uh, a police officer was in a big firefight with some of his guys, and he was literally said, said, I was like thinking to myself, okay, cover and move. Here's what we're gonna do: prioritize and execute. He was going through. Mm-hmm. He's like, it was pretty awesome. Pretty awesome yeah. to hear that. Dang. To hear a guy say, "Yep." Oh. I could hear your voice saying, cover, move, put down, cover, fire right now. When it's going down. Yeah, Holy when it's cow. happening. Yeah. They were in a 21-minute firefight, which is a long, long that's a long firefight, for, especially for police officers. Back to the book. Drill for combat changes the recruit squad into an efficient fighting machine. Training can convert an unorganized civilian group into an organized unit with deadly power. Military competence, moreover, strips war of its most repulsive and paralyzing horrors. And knowledge takes from the enemy his most potent potent and effective weapon, surprise. Drill, combat training practice, and discipline combined with the experience in war are things that make America's combat troops into seasoned troops. So even taking away the ability for the enemy to surprise you, it's like we talked about before. If, if you try a move on me in jiu-jitsu, and, you, and I've never seen it before, there's a chance it's gonna work. There's the best possible chance it's gonna work. As soon as I know what that move is, yeah. then it's the chances of it working are a lot less. Yeah. A lot less. Yeah. Significantly less. Yeah, yeah. That's why role playing is so important. Well, in the business world, in yeah, business role playing is yeah. very important because we can come at you with different things that a subordinate is going to say to you. Yeah. Or even up the chain of command. If I had to go brief my boss on something that we were pretty sure he didn't like, mm-hmm. and I, I was like, okay, Echo, you be the boss. You come at me with all the negatives about the plan I've come up with, and then we do that. So then when I go in, I've already seen these. No, I've seen, seen it. Yeah. At me. Even one time, like yeah. I said, even one time, one time makes an incredible difference. Yeah. 
back to the book and we need speed democracies always have to hurry up at the last minute the enemy is always facing us ready trained and there isn't much time we must take advantage of every possible shortcut toward the goal of creating seasoned troops troops armed with adequate adequate training the first shortcut is an understanding of the few facts about how learning takes place the most important requirement of learning is incentive men marching to drill reluctantly can no more be taught swiftly and efficiently than a jeep can be taught to run on an empty tank People need incentive. But fortunately for the army's instructors, there is a powerful there is a powerful motive furnished by the situation itself. No false incentives need be thought up and provided. The enemy has attacked us, we are at war, and no man wants to go out and face the that enemy unprepared. No American wants to see American soldiers killed needlessly in unmatched battle. No one wants to see our armies defeated and the Gestapo policing New York City. Success itself is a reward to the soldier. It makes him proud. This is when they start, I forgot to say that I'm skipping chunks of this book, but this is where he's talking about how the incentives that, that that a soldier can have. His commander may commend him, but it is usually enough if he sees that his CO has noticed that he has done a good job. Good morale depends on such rewards. Appro- um, such awards by his officers and approval from his own comrades. In general, reward is much more effective for learning than is punishment. This is good. Punishment excites resentment and tends to make the soldier anxious not to comply if he can get away with carelessness or disobedience. That's If you could remember that right there, this podcast is worthwhile. If you remember the fact that as a leader, if you're, if you're constantly punishing people, what you're doing is making them resentful, encouraging them to not comply and rebel against you and try and get away with carelessness and disobedience. Mm. Think about your kids too, right? Because we do that with the kids. You better do what I told you. And then when they try, they're trying to skate around you. Reward keeps his attention on the business in hand. Punishment tends to shift his attention from the task to his own troubles. The best kind of reward, because it is most effective in learning, is the glow of satisfaction that a man has when he knows he has done something correctly and well, it has clicked. The most effective punishment is the surge of disgust that comes when he knows he's missed the target. That's all, that one's always good to have a reminder because it's natural to like, I mean, with your kids or whatever. The when they do something wrong, it's because n- n- that'll stick out more in your mind. You know, if they if they do something right, especially if it's not for the first time. It's like, oh, yeah, that's how you're supposed to do it, right, kind of thing. So it doesn't stick out as much in your mind. to to commend them. Yeah, like encouragement, reward kind of thing. Like it's, you know, it's more powerful. But then in your mind as kind of the teacher or whatever, uh, when they fail to miss the mark, you know, especially if they do it like if they're having a hard time with something, you know, you know, like to learn stuff, you got to do it over and over. So then they're having a hard time, I don't know, swimming, potty training, I don't know, whatever. When they don't miss the mark yet. So you, it comes with frustration sometimes. Can't do that. Can't show that kind of thing. But even though it's like the most readily available like reaction, you know, the when they fail. So, you get, so yeah, to be reminded of it helps, I think. Yeah, it's an important point. Next, 
This is why the army has to has been right to reduce greatly the emphasis on close order drill in recent years. In the light of modern knowledge and in the view of modern conditions of warfare, this drill conflicts with the methods which must be used in battle. So close infantry drill is, or close order drill is when, you know, you see the Marines or Army, they're like handing the rifle back, really force, and everything's all, it's like parade type stuff. That's what close order drill is. And they used to do more of it, and now he's saying that they do less. Back to the book. In the drill of the early basic training, the whole emphasis on teaching is on teaching the soldier to respond to spoken commands. When he, yet when he goes into combat, spoken, spoken commands become impossible. The human voice is silent in the din of battle. If commands are given at all, they must be given in the form of a nudge, a kick, or an arm and hand signal. And in drill, the soldier also forms the habit of acting shoulder to shoulder with other men. He comes to rely on being in a group, on doing what the other men do when they do it. Yet in combat, such close order work would be suicidal. Men are on their own. Men are then on their own or in twos or threes. They must keep at a distance from each other, both to do much of their fighting skillfully and to avoid making crowded targets for the enemy's bombs, shells, or bullets. This means that in advanced training, men must learn new habits which conflict some respects of the old. That's not good. The basic rule of learning is this. Do it right from the beginning. Because if you form wrong habits, you must unlearn them before you can learn what is right. The rule to follow is never prepare for combat by learning to act on a signal that cannot be given after combat has started. And then it talks about how to increase the speed of training. Here's some things to do to increase the speed of training. Number one. Do things right the first time. Number two, keep constant checks that you know immediately whether you are doing right or making a mistake. That's a good one. That's why I like shooting steel so much. Have you ever shot steel before? No. As soon as you as soon as you pull the trigger and the shot goes, you know if you hit it or not. Yeah. And so it's completely gratifying. Yeah. Make no unnecessary motions. If you flourish your hands or putter around with your tools, like it or not, these profitless motions will become habit too. You want to do everything as clean as you can. Do things in the same order and in the same way. Stick to this rule as far as possible. Avoid unnecessary links in the chains of your learning. This was interesting. I'm not going to read it because it went on about learning Morse code and how, how you can put these multiple different steps in to learn it when in fact you could just say that noise means this letter Mm. you don't have to translate it to the little things in your mind or the sounds in your mind the dit dit dosh dot the dot dot dash 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 or whatever you don't need to translate that in your mind that sound means this letter and you can get there quickly right right like a language well it is language really yeah 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 yeah. like when you're fluent in a language you don't think in english anymore or whatever you don't think in your yes yeah I don't, I've rarely got, I've maybe gotten to that a little with a few parts of Espanol when I was in college, but I never carried on a conversation without translating what I was hearing, which is completely lame. Yeah. It's the, you know, it's it's clunky for sure, but you know, that's how it's part of the process. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Number six, aim at first for smoothness of performance rather than speed. Number seven, be sure to understand what you are trying to do, what final objective you are aiming, aiming at. That's important. P- 
people should really, you, you, whoever you're training needs to understand what they're trying to do. I found this in early jujitsu. There was a lot of lacking in this where mm. you didn't understand that getting the underhooks was a thing. Mm. You just understood, like for this particular move, you put your arm here. I didn't understand it was a whole thing. Mm. It would have been better to be like, hey, you're always looking for the underhooks. Mm. Makes sense. That's actually what Dean taught me. He totally. did teach he, me that. He is the one that taught me that too. Yeah. And this is when he was a blue belt. Yeah. Interesting. Number eight, learn series of actions rather than single moves. That's good for jujitsu as well. Mm-hmm. You don't just want to learn one. You want to learn how all those three, four, five moves tie together and how you set up the counters mm. and how the counter leads to another trap. Nine, keep on practicing. 10, overlearn. Number 11, relax. Interestingly enough, mm-hmm. tell people to relax and relax harder. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the book. Ways have been worked out to help cut down the time required to master a subject, to read and understand a book or assignment, to solve a problem, or to memorize a rule or formula. The man in the army. This is this is about studying, mm-hmm. and I I, just, I was like eh, I don't know if I'm gonna put this in there. But then all you know, people are students. People at a new job, they gotta learn something, and this is the most cold blooded way to talk about learning. The man in the army should not allow noise or other distractions or interruptions to put him off his work. Working under such difficult circumstances is direct training for actual fighting conditions. Oh, so there's some annoying things going on when you're trying to, you know, read a book? Cool. Learn to ignore them. In the field, the most... In the field, the most vital and difficult decisions must be made in the midst of the most violent distractions and under all sorts of physical and mental strains. The officer had to wait until he could be free of noise or disturbance before he could work out a problem or make a decision would be useless in the army. If he's used to it, a certain amount of noise and confusion may actually stimulate the army man to do better thinking. If it's convenient, a definite time of the day should be assigned for study. The mind can be trained to be ready for work at a certain hour, so this happens as much the same way as you begin without, uh, begin thinking about food or some other set time. For the same reason, it might be desirable to have a certain place set aside for study, even if it is just your bunk in a noisy barracks or tent. Then the act of sitting down in that place will immediately form habit, put you in the proper frame of mind for mental work. If you are lucky enough to have a desk or a corner for your study, don't spoil its value by using it for relaxation or loafing. But even if they are insistently disturbing, insistently disturbing, it is nearly always possible to ignore distractions and get down to the business at hand. The mind is an excellent sieve net. You can read the newspapers and never see the advertisements. You would hear a strange footsteps across the room, yet never notice the loud ticking of a clock on your own table. The telegrapher can sleep through the long, continuous sounding of his instrument, yet wake at once his own call, when his own call comes in with the right dots and dashes. In the same way, it is possible to make yourself deaf and blind to all sorts of sights and sounds except those directly concerned with the problem being studied. Do you get annoyed when there's when you're trying to do work? Do you listen to music when you're doing work? Depends on the work, but yes. Interesting. 
at first it is fatiguing to shut out distractions. You know what I'm like? I was just, as I was asking that question, this is what I'm like. If I let something start to bother me, then it just bothers me a ton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and for some reason, if I just don't let it bother me, then it's fine. Like huh. if my, my wife's in the other room with you know my youngest daughter and they're playing a game and they're making noise and having conversations about it and whatever. Yeah. If I'm if I'm in the wrong mindset, if I don't do what this book is telling me to do, which is just you, know, you just shut it out like yeah. a like a like a legit dude is supposed to do. Oh, there's some noise over there. Whatever. Yeah. Just lock it up. Yep. Otherwise, it's what weakness. Otherwise, right? it's major weakness. weakness. <laughs> what about like snoring? Um, like you know, you, you ever like a roommate or what? But you know, yeah, guys who no, snore. I have. Uh, we have a mutual friend that when we used to go to fights, we'd stay in one room and the snoring would be pretty crazy. But I would normally sleep right through it. Yeah, yeah. If I know what's happening, it's weird. Like my my crying kids mm-hmm. when they were babies, they would make wake up my wife and my wife and I would sleep right through it. Mm-hmm. But if there's a noise outside the house or whatever, I'm awake and she yeah. sleeps right there. It's like the perfect combination. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the what the girl, the mother and the crying child, I think that's a genetic thing. I think where like a crying baby is like, well, you know, did it's you, like a genetic thing. Did you learn that in bro science? <laughs> the halls of bro science? <laughs> uh, hey, does know. that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. And is there part of me, because you know, when, when we had small children, my wife didn't work, I did. So, that was her roles and response. My roles and responsibility were go to the, you know, do my job during the day and whenever I was in the Navy. Her roles and responsibilities were to take care of those kids. Yeah. So she, there's probably a, a huge part of that where that I'm maybe in the beginning when the first baby was crying and I was like, oh, what's that? And then eventually I just said, oh, she's got it. You yeah, know? huh? Yeah, that makes sense. She's got it handled. Yeah. Uh, going back to the book, at first it is fatiguing to shut out distractions. You actually make your muscles tense in your effort to attend to business. Later you get so that things that distract you no longer worry you. You know, it's when I'm on an airplane, you ever have a screaming baby on an airplane? Yeah. No factor to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's like no factor whatsoever. Yeah. I'm like, oh, whatever. Yeah, we talked about this yeah. while we were on the airplane. Oh, okay. You brought it up too. I was like, oh, yeah, that screaming, is that, is that bothering you? Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> doesn't bother me at all. No. Still later they help and find that you miss them if they disappear, like the man who is startled when his clock stopped ticking or the radio. At first it prevents you from studying, but if you keep it on continuously, you may get so you cannot study without it. Having set the stage as well as possible for most effective study, the next important preparation is to develop absorbing interest in the material to be mastered. It is not necessary to resort to self-delivered mental pep talks. Enthusiasm grows naturally out of the realization that a study is important in reaching a desirable goal, that it will satisfy your curiosity, and will give you a chance to exercise some special talent. Isn't that funny how that could very well be a self-pep talk? That those words yeah, right true, there, you know, true. you could use it. But, uh. True. The chief aid to learning, however, is understanding. When something makes sense, when it all fits in with what you already know, then it is easily filed away in the ready reference system of your memory where it can be recalled later at need. Learning without understanding is hard. You probably learned the multiplication tables that way. Learning with understanding may require no effort at all. 
So try to understand, see relationships. If chapter eight depends on chapter two and you are uncertain about chapter two, turn back. See the dependence, work it out for yourself rather than read it again. If you learn a new scientific fact, see whether you can find instances of it in your own experience. And then when you think you know it, when you think you know what you have studied, say it all over to yourself in your own words. That tests understanding. Sometimes it gets clear for the first time as you explain it to yourself. And if you can't get it said to your own satisfaction, then chances are you really do not understand it. And what you don't understand, you won't remember. That's good information right there for the students of the world, which everyone should be. This is other good information. Solving problems. The method of bird's eye view first applies to rapid problems solving as well. Haste too often tempts people to plunge into working out the first part of a problem or the easy parts before the entire problem is clearly in mind. This may result in a false start and needless work. Read the whole problem through first. Use care in setting the problem down. If you are new at this particular sort of problem, don't try to take shortcuts in this. A little extra time used on formulating the problem in your mind or on paper can save a great deal of time in finding the solution. The next step is to rapidly review all possible methods of solving the problem until you find the the one that seems right. Then try that. If that fails to work, try another. That's the way you work with a mechanical puzzle. You should use the same method on a technical problem. And this is the same exact thing that I was saying about how to solve like a complex tactical scenario. Mm. You take a step back, you look at what the problem is, you make sure you understand the whole problem. Mm. You just don't say, oh, we're getting shot at from over there, we're gonna change everything and focus on that because you're getting flanked. Yeah. Or you're getting you're getting some recon by fire over there. So you take a step back, you analyze the situation, you make sure you understand it to the best of your possible ability, and then you start saying, okay, what are my options? Once you figure out what your options are, you quickly assess what would the results of those options be, what's the upside, what's the downside, and then you pick one of them and you go. So funny, that exact thing, not as complex, but that exact thing played itself out in my life very recently. So I got a trampoline, right? You know, one of those big ones yeah. for your kids. And you got to put it together. Yeah. And Someone didn't look at the whole instructions. <laughs> well, I do this thing where, it, where that, that they said, I forget how they, how it said it, the words they, they use in the book right there that you just said. But basically, I looked at it. I didn't understand the whole thing. I didn't read the whole instruction. Right. I, I looked at it. I was like, oh, I understand. Yep. I, see, I see the problem I'm dealing with here. So I did it. And How'd that work out for you? Th- bro, three separate times I went. You know how like at yeah, a certain yeah. point you got to make sure you got to do something? Yeah. It's like that kind. So I had to make sure that the springs were aligned in a certain way mm-hmm. for a reason that's going to come up later. Yeah, that you right? didn't know. So I'm like, sure, I get it. I'm smart. I put on all the springs, the whole thing, everything. It took like an hour, just over an hour to do it. So I keep going and keep going keep going. Now it's time to put up like the, um, the you know the little barriers so your yeah. kids don't fly off the trampoline. But the springs or the the springs are not aligned with the hooks there, so I can't put up the barriers. Yeah, that's a bummer, isn't it? It's a freaking bummer. Yeah, yeah. And it happened again with another thing later. Actually, it happened four times. But the fourth thing was just the little basketball hoop, and I was like, it's not worth it. Yeah. Uh, so I never put on the basketball hoop. But Clear. yeah, man, if I were to under, just read the whole thing, read the whole dang thing, and I wouldn't yes. have read. It would have saved me like three hours. 
Back to the book. When you are stumped, it may be because you have taken the wrong approach to the problem. It's easy to get into a rut in thinking. It is hard to shake yourself loose from one point of view and see a completely new one. This stuff is so simply stated that it's it, you underestimate the power of what's being said right here. Yeah. This stuff is lifesavers. You tend to keep going back and repeating the same old kind of attack that has always failed. It's like feeling in the same, it's like, it's like feeling in the same pocket six time, six times when you've lost your cigarettes and cannot find them. <laughs> Especially is it hard to try new methods when you are tired or nervous over your failure to get the right answer. At such times, it is best to close your book and work on something else or to do something outdoors with fresh air or even if you can afford the time, take a nap. When you come back to your problem, the, the new approach may come to you in a flash and from then on, the work may go quickly and smoothly. Yeah. I, I have to actually, that's one of those things, I'm pretty instinctive on a lot of things that I do in terms of things that I talk about and the way I actually apply them in my life. I'm pretty good at most of them. Most of them, I'm, I'm not even, I don't have to consciously, I can kind of look back and go, oh yeah, I see what I did and I'm pretty mm. stoked on it. I can do that, especially in jujitsu. I can get in a rut and be like, oh, I'm just going to do this right here and it should work because I've done it before and it's going to work this time. Yeah. And I'll have to constantly be like, oh, you, you're, you're, you're beating your head against the wall. Yeah. Don't do it anymore. Yeah. And I'll have to do a different approach. Yeah. But I, I mean, that's very, it's kind of demonstrates your humility because you've always like every time we roll in, actually, when I see you rolling with other like really good guys, it seems like you adapt and, and make little changes way quicker than most people and for dang sure way quicker than me. I feel like I'm all that. Like what you just said, I feel like that's just 100% me. Yeah, yeah. No, what I'm saying, but I, I'm sure I'm okay at it. I mean, I know I'm okay at it. Even me at this point, I'll be like, oh, he's not going to put his arm there. You've yeah. tried it three times in a row. Yeah, it's not yeah. working. You need to do something else. Yeah, you can like recognize it I in recognize yourself, yeah. when I'm beating my head up against the wall. Yeah. And that's not a good feeling. Mm. And it's, but the great feeling is as soon as you do something different, generally, you, you, you may not get total success, but you won't get the same outcome yeah. because the outcome is failing. Yeah. Which we don't like. No, we don't. How to make learning stick. The two basic principles of learning anything are interest and participation. It is not true that repetition alone is the basis of learning something well. A man who repeats an act again and again with his mind only half of what he is doing, um, with his mind only half on what he is doing, may indeed learn it, but he will learn it neither quickly nor well. Fortunately, doing a thing and practicing it usually reinforce a man's interest so that there is really only one important principle, interest at the bottom of learning. Active participation is secured by practice. Lectures are used only when preliminary explanation at some length is needed or when men cannot be put through the work itself. You're not only told how to fire a rifle, you are helped actually to do the firing and you work out of doors in the way that you will later work in combat. You do under instruction what later on you are going to have to do in combat yourself. So you gotta do these things. Interest is secured in a variety of way. Number, variety of ways. Number one, the personality of the instructor is important. It should be dynamic and for, it should be a dynamic and forceful person 
who appreciates the fact that learning takes time and that some men are slower than others. He must stimulate his men to want to learn. Two, instruction must finally become individual. There must be close contact between some instructor and every soldier. Three, the relation of the learning to the problems of combat must always be stressed. Four, although non-essentials are omitted in army teaching, it is important that the soldier should understand the basic principles of what he is doing. If he is learning how to use a machine, then he should know how the machine works. Critical. And number five, the soldier must also have full knowledge of the purpose of what he learns, of why he needs to know it. Only with such knowledge can his interest be at the highest. And only with such knowledge is he able to adapt what he has learned to different circumstances that arise in combat. So he's got to know why. And it also says here that all army commanders are leaders and teachers. So if you're a leader, you are a teacher. Talking a little bit here about efficiency in training. The simplest kind of learning is to learn by trial and error, but this isn't the best, the most efficient way. It wastes too much time, and so the army never uses it except in solving original problems where one method after another may be tried, or at least imagined. So trial and error is never the best. Here's a good one. In battle, a leader can give orders, but only brief ones, sometimes by signal. The soldier receiving such an order must also see the battle situation right around him in deciding how to best carry out that order. Next, how to speed up training. Will to learn. A soldier's common sense tells him that he must learn how to fight before he meets the enemy. Number two, interest. Number three, discipline. Soldiers are trained to realize the serious importance of the things they are taught, how much these things will mean in combat later on. Number four, individual instruction. Number five, experience of success. Army instructors try their best to see that each man does a thing right the first time, even by holding his hand and putting it through the correct movements if necessary. Number six, elimination of non-essentials. You're only supposed to be learning things that you actually need to know. Number seven, all-around attack. Every possible way of reaching the soldier's student mind is utilized. And then this instruction is immediately put to use in action on the job. Soldiers learn by doing so. As far as possible, instruction is kept practical and concrete. If an instructor puts too much emphasis on training men in the particular details of doing a job, the soldier fails to get a clear understanding of the result aimed at it. Although men in training, although in training men in many different army jobs, adequate attention must be paid to the detailed steps to be taken to reach the final objective, the aim itself must also be made entirely clear to the soldier. This is cool. When I train little kids in jiu-jitsu, I'll be like, you just got to get around their legs. Yeah. 
Then you tell them that and they'll figure out how to do it. And then when they get stumped, you teach them some actual technique. Otherwise, he's apt to become confused in battle if the situation changes and he cannot follow the steps in exactly the way he was taught in training. Efficiency in the army. Every ounce of the soldier's energy should be concentrated on the defeat of the enemy. Whenever he wastes his strength on any sort of activity that does not contribute to that one end, it is in effect a casualty. Nowhere is efficiency more important than in combat. There, every man must work at the very peak of his powers. His eyes must see better than the enemy's eyes. His ears must hear better. He must think better. On this, victory depends. Weary, weariness, tired hands, or eyes, or nervous system, anything that reduces the soldier's efficiency at a critical moment in combat may cost him his life. It may cost the army a position and advance a battle. The enemy usually refuses to recognize the end of a work day. Nature often provides the only lighting. Bomb holes ensure ventilation. When a soldier gets into actual combat, what he is called upon to do seems to have no similarity at all to anything he had ever done in a civilian job. There is no routine in battle, no standardization, no monotonous repetition. Each moment is a challenging new experience calling for new decisions and fresh insight. It is hard to see where the combat soldier can get any help at all from what he has learned about efficiency in a factory far from the battle zone. That is why a soldier in training must learn from the start to cut out useless and roundabout movements that take needless time. Seconds count. And a soldier's energy counts too. He can't afford to get worn down before his job is done. He must keep his speed and accuracy up to top-notch performance. Any blunder in combat may be fatal. There, he may not be able to miss and aim again. He may never have another chance. Now we get into this last little section that we're going to cover today. It's about fatigue, about sleep. That other enemy. Mm-hmm. Fatigue is a fifth column enemy that is always ready to infiltrate and attack. No man can stick at a job for long periods through the day and night and continue at top-notch performance, especially if his job involves using a great deal of strength, keeping alert, and making accurate split-second decisions. So you allegedly need rest. No, bro. <laughs> I posted the other day, Sleep is the Enemy. And people get so... It's a song by Danko Jones. Mm-hmm. And it's a great song. Sure. But, and you know, I kind of do feel that way, you know, because it's pretty easy just to fold to sleep and you can spend all day in bed. I know you don't see it that way, but I kind of do. No, man. But, sleep is the enemy just like food is the enemy. Yeah. If you start yeah, abusing it and oh, making, yeah. you know, like... Good but, point. no, man. Good point. Just how long... Men can work and continue to do their best depends upon a great many different things. It depends first upon the man. It depends also on the type of work. It depends upon the conditions of the work, upon the food eaten, upon rest obtained during the job, upon worry and excitement, and 
finally upon the necessity for action. A man can run fast and long if death or the devil is behind him. He can fight hard for unbelievable lengths of time if there can be no retreat or if victory is in sight. Most hazardous is the fatigue which comes from spurts of extreme effort, the greatest of which a man is capable. Such supreme effort seldom, if ever, occurs in any job on the home front. It does occur in sport. It does occur in battle. Spurred by the necessity to extraordinary violence, a man may actually put out so much effort that he burns up his body fuel at a rate eight times more than the normal rate. I have no idea where they got these numbers. I, I, eight times more. That's a pretty accurate. This, he cannot keep up more than a few minutes at a time. Otherwise, the sugar in his blood will fail, will fall to a critically low level. His heart will fail. His collapse or even death will follow. What do you think? Bro science right there? Well, I mean, then you make a good point where you... <laughs> Where he got these? I don't know where he got those numbers from. Well, we do but know people get rhabdo. Yes, and and but you get rhabdo, you don't like f- fail on the moment, right? Your heart doesn't fail. Yeah, well, it's I would I the first thing I thought of is like in in jujitsu or MMA where you get the like like the adrenaline dump, right? Because yeah. you're you're so like. I mean, it's through adrenaline, but like it's these external circumstances. It's like you're on the stage. You know, usually mm. it's in a, in a competition. It's not yeah. necessarily in training. So you're on the stage. So it's win. It's do or die. Yeah. Uh, on on stage, everyone's but watching. It's, not it's really do, or do or die. die. It's not do or die. But that's what these guys are. This is a combat. That's do or, that's die, do yes. or die. Yes, but so because that's I was just thinking, like, if this is true, like when a guy gets gassed in the UFC yeah. and he just can't go on, yeah. but then what if somebody came in there with a machete? And was like, run, or yeah. I'm going to hack you to pieces. What yeah, do you think the guy would do? Yeah, he'd run. You think he'd run, so, right? Yeah, but that's like another level of stress. That's, so, that's do or die. Yes, that's do or die. So yes, you're sir. throwing do or die out there on the UFC or whatever, and that's not accurate. <laughs> no, sir, it's not. It's very inaccurate. But as an example, it feels like that's, you know, like guys, they're so, but they're using like probably eight times the energy. You know, because they're so pumped yeah. up because of their on stage and stuff, the nerves and all that stuff. So it's like that. You know, it's another weird one when someone gasses or whatever, and then mm-hmm. they end up winning, and then yeah. they get that other surge from and they winning. They're jumping on celebration. Like, yeah, you're like, what was that a couple <laughs> ten seconds ago? Why didn't you put that effort out, bro? <laughs> I know, bro. Yeah. So but, that that proves. I wrote about this in the field manual. Like sometimes you got to use emotion, and sometimes you got to use logic. But yeah. sometimes you got to let that emotion come out. Yeah. So, but all that the thing is, like, it, it, that does sound funny and look funny if a guy like seems to be sort of gassing, totally. then right the literally the second he wins, he's he's running with his hands yeah, in the yeah, air. Yeah, by the way, sure. when you know, but all that is that's not like a um, like a maybe a slacker thing or some, nothing like that. That's like just the stress and. Winning is like, I don't know if I'd call it a stress, but I guess this is what I heard. This is bro science. I heard this from people. I didn't read this in any <laughs> official thing, but you get like this boost uh, of like hormones, like testosterone and all these crazy hormones when you win yeah. a fight. So it's maybe it's that. Yeah. So it's like, man, it's not like it's controllable. You have to actually be be confronted with a stimulus of winning yeah. for that, for you to get that boost, you know? Just like you're confronted with a stimulus of the crowd to get that overdrive scenario where you're using eight times the energy back to the book yet such fatigue fatigue does not always make you inefficient if you have strong enough need or desire for action 
So I like that right there. Yeah, that's that machete scenario that yeah. you just introduced. Sometimes I wonder if I'm like perpetually in a state of like war. I wonder that in my brain too. Yeah, because sometimes I can't sleep at all. I, I believe that. Yeah, and I, because I want to get up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like that all the time. I mean, I do. There's, there's definitely days where I sleep really soundly. Yeah. But a lot of times, it's like, no, it's not happening because I got stuff I got to do. Or we're at war over here on my end over here. I understand. Yes. Mental work and emotional strain are also fatiguing. But the man who gets tired from mental work or the strain of responsibility and worry has additional problem. He may not consume the sugar in his blood as does the man engaged in a violent physical work or combat. His blood, therefore, gets out of balance. This is bro science coming at you. <laughs> and the rest of sleep may not readily restore it. It's actually weird because it's bro science, but it makes sense. Yeah, I guess like, all bro science kind of makes sense. That's it, why it's bro science, it, right? Yes. It is good for the man who has been under this sort of strain to get some sort of physical exercise. A swift game of tennis, <laughs> a long walk, or a turn at chopping wood. A second effect of fatigue is the tired feeling. <laughs> I think that's funny. Sure. This is nature's natural protection against over fatigue. When a man feels tired, it becomes increasingly difficult for him to go on with his job. He is more and more eager for rest and sleep, less and less able to spur himself on to go another mile. The best antidote for this feeling of tiredness is high morale and the example of other men. It is the man working alone who has the hardest job in combating his own desire to lie down and sleep. But the most important effect of fatigue is the effect it has on work. When a man is tired, he doesn't. He cannot do his very best. The amount of work he is able to do falls off and the quality of his work suffers too. He does not see it as well, does not hear as well, nor is he so alert. His movements may become clumsy and bungling. In loss of loss and efficiency, strange as it may seem, is not always related to feelings of fatigue. A man may feel very tired when he has not been working particularly hard, but is merely bored or uninterested in his work, or when the ventilation is so bad that he gets dopey. This is important, I think. On the other hand, a man really close to exhaustion, may be so excited by his work that he's unable to rest and does not feel tired at all. Oh, yeah. So consider this and probably think about this That's a lot me. for some reason. Yeah, it is you. <laughs> That's what I think. And consider this like in jiu-jitsu, right? Uh-huh. Like right now, if I were to talk enough smack to you right now, mm-hmm. like no matter how you feel, you'd be tired, you'd be yeah. in one hour sleep, you could be doing all this stuff like before and whatever, you could be tired. If I talk enough smack mm-hmm. and I challenge you to roll outside, you'll probably do it. Yeah, there's no problem. Yeah. It's on. But if I say, okay, after this, go like run on a treadmill. Mm. It's easier. It's easier. Yeah, yeah. Output. Well. (laughs) 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 I guess Uh, I kind of walked into that. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway. It's debatably easier <laughs> to run on a treadmill. But man, you ever ran a? You used to, have you ever run a treadmill? Like, like has that I've ever been part of your treadmill? Probably ten times in my whole life. Yeah. So, and you know, I used to get into the treadmill. But man, if when you get when that boredom hits you, bro, you're like, I can't run one yeah. more step on this damn thing. Even though I could easily go train right now yeah. with like a bunch of good guys, you know. Yeah. So it's like it's that exact thing. When you get bored, like just the littlest bit of fatigue is gonna jam you up big time. Yeah. But 
even if you're really fatigued and you're doing something fun, bruh, you, you'll go. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's why jiu-jitsu is such good exercise because it's fun. So true. Men differ considerably in the rate at which they get tired on the same job. They differ even more in their rates of recovery after work is over. There is almost no general rule as to what will happen except that recovery is very rapid at first and slows down as the rested state is approached. The fact means, however, that a lot of good can be got out of short rest and that many short rests are better than one long one. That makes sense to me. Taking a little power nap. Mm. Students learn best if they do not do all learning at once. Do not try and cram up before examinations, but study a little and then quit for a while for a day or two. In industry, efficiency is highest when rest pauses are arranged at frequent in- intervals. I agree with that. Although sometimes I just power through stuff. Mm-hmm. So it does not pay to overwork workers or soldiers. Some fatigue is unavoidable and much fatigue must be undergone in the process of toughening a soldier. But chronic fatigue is not to be found along the shortest road to victory. So don't get tired. Now it gets real specific on sleep. You can stay up all night and keep awake. And this, I was surprised how accurate this reflects me. I think you'll find it um, accurate as well. You can stay up all night and keep awake provided you are active, provided you keep using some muscles, at least the speaking muscles. You can march all night, play poker all night, fight all night, and talk all night. You will likely, you will be likely to get terribly sleepy somewhere between 0300 and 0600. Unless you are doing something exciting or intensely interesting, but you can get through that provided you're active. So like this would happen a lot, you go out on a patrol, and you patrol all night to get to a position and then it's now three o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. and that's when you get tired. Four o'clock in the morning, you haven't gone to bed yet, that's when you get tired. Mm-hmm. And then this happens. Um, oh, actually, continue on. That does not mean, however, that you can read or study all night using few muscles other than those of your eyes. If you have to study all night, you may need to read out loud or stand up to read. By the time, because basically, and that's totally true, right? If you have work to do, and you're up working, it's fine. But if you yeah. if you oh, I can read this book oh, in the yeah. next ten hours, and you're falling asleep. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why you, if you like, let's say you have a, a normal scheduled job like a nine to five, mm-hmm. and then you want to work out or go jujitsu or something after work, mm-hmm. don't go home because when you go home, <laughs> you sit trap. down on the couch for a second, or even if you just like, <laughs> you know, just talk to your wife yeah. or whatever, it's like. Yeah. Like uh, r- rather than go going home. straight to the gym, and you're you're that going, might be you know? the best advice you've ever given. <laughs> Thanks, Seriously, uh, yeah. like if you want to train, don't go home. Yeah. Go to the gym. Yeah, that's very good advice. Then, then it goes on, and it says by breakfast time you will be getting less sleepy. This is totally true. If you stay up, and the, once the sun's coming up. You can get through the next day pretty well. You may feel tired, especially if you've been awake, march, especially if you've been marching or walking to keep awake. You won't feel fresh. You'll feel uncomfortable, but other people will not notice anything wrong with you unless you sit down to relax with nothing important or interesting to do. Then very likely you'll doze off. If you have a job that requires accurate movements or accurate thinking, you'll probably make no more mistakes than you usually do. So that's saying, hey, if you stay up for 24 hours, you'll still be good to go. Whole next day. Mm-hmm. Which I know you've done this at the muster or close to it. Right, where you've done like an hour sleep, two hours sleep. But yeah, yeah, I've done it before. Maybe yeah. for one day. Yeah, one and then day. like second day, you kind of hit the rag real early. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> big time. Yeah. Uh, the second night, you won't want to stay up, but you may have to. Another march may be necessary. Or the enemy may attack, and it's the second night. And the second night is like the first. 
but more difficult. It's harder to keep active under your own power, yet you can if your officers of the enemy furnish the motivation. You don't want to keep your mind on any topic very long. Your thoughts and ideas will trail off into irrelevancies. If you can possibly get a chance to relax, you will, and then you'll go to sleep. You ought not to be on sentry duty, but you may keep awake by walking. Or if you go off into an inattentive daze while you continue walking. By this time, you are probably getting quite irritable. Little things provoke you and you may talk some nonsense. Your anger does not last, though. You'd rather go to sleep. The day after the second sleepless night is better than the preceding sleepless night, but you'll be irritable, rambling, and illogical in speech, thought, and inattentive, more than usually sensitive to pain. Your eyes itch. You may begin to see double. You can't sit down or read. Your handwriting becomes bad and pencil may drop from your hand. You may even begin to have hallucinations, imagining events that do not really happen, as if you begun to dream while you are still awake. You can still be spurred to your full mental powers and manual dexterity if the stimulus is strong enough. If your commander demands your attention, if a shell comes over, but the effect of these things doesn't last as long as it would normally. Pretty soon you are back to where you were with the most important thing in your world is to need the need to shut your eyes and go to sleep. Wounded soldiers coming out of combat after many days and nights of continuing continuous fightings Fighting may be so terribly in need of sleep that even the severe pain of wounds does not keep them from going sound asleep as soon as they are allowed to lie down. Anesthetics can be dispensed with. So there you go. There's your there's your second day, and now you're in your second day. Uh, second full day without sleep. How long can you go without sleep? You can manage a third night without sleep and maybe a fourth with all the symptoms getting worse, with attention harder and harder to command, with more activity necessary to keep you awake. A psychologist once kept himself awake for four whole days, spurred only on by scientific motive for seeing what would happen next. With doses of a stimulant, Benzedrine, which is like an amphetamine, which I had to look up to help, he may actually, he actually kept himself awake for eight whole days and seven nights. There was a man once who believed that sleep was a bad habit, (laughs) which ought to and could be overcome. He was given a watchman's clock on which to record every 10 minutes the fact that he was awake. He stayed awake almost continuously for nine and a half days, missing only 31 out of 1,380 recordings of the 10-minute intervals. Of course, he got some other catnaps during the 10-minute intervals. As time wore on, he became dazed. He could keep appointments at the wrong time or in the wrong place or both. He got so he could... So that he was not always sure where he was. At the end of the time, he was beginning to have hallucinations and delusions of persecution and had become so cantankerous that the experiment had to be stopped. <laughs> he just turned into, so he just got so angry, he just had to shut it down. Like, it wasn't like he was going to die. He was just real mad at everyone. They're like, well, we can't take this anymore. So that's pretty accurate. Going back to the book, sleep soon restores the sleepy man or animal. The men who stay awake for two or three days are generally in pretty good shape after a 12-hour sleep and show no effects at all after two or three normal nights. That's totally true. You can get yourself back to normal real quick. Yeah. The whole trouble in sleeplessness is with attention and thus higher levels of the brain which are necessary for attention. The soldier who loses sleep is becoming an 
is becoming inefficient because he can no longer keep his mind on the job, on any job except the one job of getting relaxation, closed eyes, and sleep. He can be stimulated into attention by activity, by authoritative command, by danger, but the effect of the spur lasts less and less as time, less and less time as he gets sleepier. When spurred, he can do almost any simple task as about as well as usual, unless it is a task that requires attention, alertness, and judgment, then he begins to fail. Being frustrated by not being allowed to sleep, he becomes irritable, belligerent, and perhaps even unmanageable. His morale goes down. He's no longer a good comrade, but his recovery will be rapid. Give him sleep, which is all he wants, and pretty soon he'll be back his old, competent, friendly, alert self. That's all right in an emergency, but ordinarily, soldiers should have enough sleep. They need to be alert, whether for study or combat, whether driving a truck in America or firing an anti-tank gun in Africa or Europe. Enough regular sleep from taps to first call should be the rule, except when the enemy decrees otherwise. There is no rule about the amount of sleep that young adults must have. Some get cranky and irritable when cut down from seven hours a night to five. Others do not. The unit with high morale can do with less sleep, but sleepy men tend to have low morale. These two forces work against each other. There, is also, there are also no rigid rules about the details of sleep. No rules that apply to everyone alike. So, and, and actually it's interesting because I'm here right now on a very minimal amount of sleep. I had, a meet, I had to fly to D.C. I had a meeting in D.C. It went late. And when I got done with the meeting, got back to my hotel at midnight, I had to prep this podcast I was on West Coast time, so I was like, well, it's only 10 o'clock or whatever, 9 o'clock. So I just stayed awake. My car pickup was at 3. I probably slept 40 minutes. And then, well, but then I did sleep on the plane, flying back from the East Coast out to here. I got at least probably three hours of sleep there, uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. You know, just not, is that even sleep? We don't know. What does that count as? And... Not try, not don't have much sleep right now. You doing but, pretty good. Yeah, it doesn't matter. When people, <laughs> you know, when people people go, you can't perform. I don't, I don't no. know. And people freak out and say, you cannot. There's no way you can perform as well mm. when you're sleeping. If you don't have enough sleep, it's like, bro, I get it. Mm. Hey, I'm not anti sleep. If you need to sleep, man, sleep as much as you can. Sleep as much as you can. Sleep eight hours a day. Sleep ten hours a day. I don't care. I'm not against you. I don't hold it against you. Mm. But there's two things. Number one, if you have a lot of things that you need to do and you spend a lot of time in bed, the things that you need to do aren't going to happen. So you may need to get out of bed and get things to happen. Number two, I don't even, I I have a horrible feeling if I sleep a lot. Not not just, okay, I feel bad because I missed on doing some stuff that I probably needed to do. Also, I don't feel more rested. Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't feel more rested if I sleep eight hours. Yeah. I feel sometimes worse. Huh. So, yeah. I, I don't know. I, yeah, and the, at, he essentially said everyone's different. Yes, like there's no, 100% so, said that. Because, man, that, I'm the complete opposite. I feel way more rested 
even seven hours, I'm good. Six hours is I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Six hours, two days in a row, I'm not not. Yeah. That's when those symptoms start to creep in. Seven hours every single day, fine. Eight hours, I feel like a boost, Optimal. like I'm a yeah. <laughs> nine hours, I don't know if I would could go nine hours more than one or two nights in a row. Like just physically, I just yeah. wake up or whatever. But oh, I could do the nine hours and I'd be like solid, solid, yeah. solid, solid. I'll have to try some something out. I'll have to try it out and see if I feel more solid. So, but you, <laughs> for you. You know, um, like you said, people say, "Hey, you, you." There's no way you can perform at your at your highest if you're like sleep deprived yeah. or whatever. Whatever. Yeah. I would imagine, just like how you know, um, how they say in here that everyone's different. Like your optimum versus your suboptimum might be like super small. Mm. You know, where you know you feel little teeny tiny effects, but your output or the results of your output or whatever are, are pretty similar. They're almost un, pretty much unnoticeable, even though Jack. You could have done a little bit better with more sleep kind of thing. But, you know, just like and then opposed to me where, man, I go five hours of sleep. The difference between six hours of sleep and five hours of sleep for me is like I feel like a completely different person. No kidding. Like there is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. There is one time it was like I remember because I was talking to Leif. Mm -hmm. So it was a time when Leif was in town. I got like very hardly any hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to him and thinking, bro, Leif think I'm, thinks I'm stupid right now. <laughs> Just because I, I didn't even really make sense. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if he noticed it, but I noticed it. But then, yeah, if I got like six or seven or whatever, it's cool. Well, for everyone that freaks out, <laughs> I'm not saying don't sleep. Sleep sleep a bunch. Sleep all you want. It's That's fine. <laughs> you don't sound very confident or you don't sound very like well um, it's probably because i don't because you only got three hours of sleep well yeah you're irritable you're irritable right now i think it's because i i I get that you should sleep but i think people take advantage of it real quick that makes sense they start start just getting into the you know hey i'm just gonna sleep all the time it's like when someone says dark chocolate's good for you You know what I'm saying? And like then they eat a whole dark yeah. chocolate cake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's like, well, does that include dark chocolate cakes? <laughs> does that include dark chocolate triple fudge ice cream? Because dark chocolate is good for you, so yeah. I'm in the game. Yeah. So sleep is good for me, so I'm not getting out of bed. Yeah. So, but whatever. I I encourage people to sleep. And I, it's not, the other thing is that's crazy is it's not like I don't sleep. I sleep, I sleep almost every day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Well, that's good. Like I almost every day I sleep. No, I sleep just about every day. I go to bed at 10, 10 30, 11, 11 30, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. I wake up at 4 30, maybe 4 20, maybe 4 32. But that's a lot of sleep. You know, that's between five and six hours yeah, every for, day. Yeah, I mean, I guess for your standard, but so no. people freaking out. Yeah. So no reason. Well, you know, I mean, for people who are sleep deprived and they do have differences, which vary. Yeah, okay. Say. This this much I do know. I do know this for a fact. When I have less sleep, I'm more emotional. Oh, oh yeah. And See? and you know what? I actually it actually is helpful for me. Oh dang. Okay. Yeah. Like yeah. I like to be sleep deprived somewhat. I don't. I shouldn't say sleep. I like to sleep a little bit less because it's more. It makes more. It makes my life a little bit more 
on edge, which yeah. I like. Actually, what's funny is you said that one time when yeah. you were like, I like a little bit of sleep depth, just a yep. little bit. Yep. That was weird when you told me. I was like, I, I see what you're saying because it kind of, it's almost like a comfort thing, right? Like if you're too comfortable, like you might be more like inclined to relax, almost yeah. kind of idea. Uh, even though, I mean, I can't really get down with it because the more rested <laughs> I am, the more happier I'm going to feel. And you, like you say emotional and in the book it said irritable, right? Yeah. Or, or something. I think it's the same thing. Yeah, I'm, yeah, with for sure. I'm with you. I'm with you, man. Irritable, like the kind of like, I'm irritable with like stuff, not even like inanimate stuff, you know, <laughs> like the, my, my phone isn't connecting oh, to yeah, my yeah. Bluetooth and my car quick enough. I'm like, what the hell's wrong with this thing in my yeah. head? You know, that kind of stuff even. But then if I'm rested, Brad, no, no factor. Mm-hmm. Maybe it won't work at all. I don't care. I just See, I, I like that little bit of edge because part of it is because things like that never bother me. So it's like, oh, whatever. My phone didn't connect. Yeah. So you're kind of dead inside. Yeah. I'd yeah. rather bring it back to life a little bit with a little <laughs> bit of anger, irritability, <laughs> make it good. Anyways, that so that's where I want to stop for this podcast about this book and on the next book and actually this is like the warm-up and I think the second half of the book is is even better it's when it gets into the morale it's when it gets into leadership it's when it gets into the psychological warfare offense and defense and so we'll pick that up on the next podcast I wanted to do one more little passage from this book here it's a shorter passage but it's just uh Again, just a just a reminder of what what war is. Going back to And We Go On by Will Bird. Here we go. We found the platoon and hardly recognized it. The sergeant was there and McDonald, but the rest were strangers. They told me that the 73rd of the 4th Division had been so cut up that they had been withdrawn and the 85th Nova Scotia Highlanders had taken their place. The remnant of the 73rd had been divided between us and the 13th. I got McDonald to one side and asked questions. It was far worse than I thought. The 42nd had gone straight through to their objective despite the sleety snow and mud and confusion, had driven back all opposition and seized their objective. But on their left, the 4th Division had been held up and a flanking fire had taken a heavy toll. Freddy was gone, he had had predicted truly. A big shell had landed beside him, killing him and burying him. Charlie had fallen in the first rush, riddled with bullets. Joe, the ex-policeman, had fought through to the objective and had been killed by a sniper on the flank. One shell had wiped out Stevenson, Thoreau, and Roy as they grouped by a captured gun. McMillan had been shot in the stomach and had died after waiting hours in a trench. Billy, the complainer, had fallen as he had charged a machine gun, keeping on until he was almost within reach of the gunners. Little Gilroy had been killed, and Westcott, Smaley, had been wounded. Huggy, the sergeant, had been defied, and had been wounded at the same time, and had been taken away together. Big Herman was missing. They located his body a month later. 
That morning he had shaken hands with Freddie, said goodbye to him, and then we had, when he had got going, had run amok. He was found almost at the bottom of the ridge near a battery position with eight dead Germans about him, four of them killed by bayonet. In the other platoons, besides Tommy, Slim and Joe had survived, and Ira and Sam, and Big Glenn, and Eddie, and Mickey, and Jerry. They sat in the dugout that night after a hard day of rebuilding roads, each man suffering from bodily fatigue and crawling with vermin and the clammy chill of mud-caked clothing, their faces brooding, enigmatic, even Mickey's curiously odd, only their eyes moving. They would not talk about the fighting and seemed utterly worn Six months ago, we had marched eagerly, bravely, our tin hats askew and with a cheeky retort for every comment, hiding whatever secret apprehensions we had, not knowing the heavy, ominous silence that follows the burst of big shells and the cries of the wounded, not knowing what it is to scrape a hasty grave at night and there bury a man who has worked with you and slept with you since you enlisted and clearly war is hell it's a physical and it is a psychological hell and the more we know about it the more we should understand that war is to be avoided as much as humanly possible but it also teaches us how strong we as human beings can be, what we can overcome. It teaches us the importance of training, the importance of preparation, the importance of will, not only the will to win in war, but the will to carry on and to win in life. And we all have that power. We just need to find it and to win. And I think that's all I've got tonight. So, Echo Charles, speaking of winning, I know we are sort of trying to be on the path of winning mentally, physically, psychologically, in life, and on the mats. And I know that's sort of the thing we're doing here, the movement. Sure. And I know you have some recommendations for that. Yes. It might be helpful. Yes, they will be helpful, oh. factually. Oh, nice, nice. What do you got? I have... Well, we're on the path, right? Mm. So we got that. Wait, war. Life is war. We're yes. at full. Yeah, what is there. it? Full wit, world <laughs> war. We're all there. out war. Yeah, all out war. All out war. Now, total war. Total war. That's yes, where that's we're what we're looking at. Yes, total war. So within that total war, there's little battles, right? Yeah. So I think people are not going to like that. What life is war, but it's so true. Really, yeah, I mean. It, I mean, and if war, you start looking at your life like it's war, yeah. it's going to make you better. Yeah. If yeah. you look at every day as a war on multiple fronts, yeah. 
that you have to fight, where victory is the only choice, yeah. you're going to have a better life. Actually, it's re- yeah, it's really good. Even for someone who, look, I get it. The word war might trigger some people. I get it. Just like the word fight might trigger some people. But you could say life is a fight. It's always a fight. Not against people. My suspicion is the amount of people listening to this podcast that are triggered by the words war or fight is zero. Zero, yes. I I agree with you. That's my suspicion. Yeah. I could be wrong, but they're severely triggered at this point if that's where they're at. (laughs) Since the only thing we talk about is fighting in war. Yes, I I think you're right. I, I believe okay. you're right. Just making sure. So, within the all-out war, there's little battles, right? And in those battles, one of those battles is the jujitsu battle. <laughs> when you do the jujitsu, you're going to need a gi and a rash guard, just yeah. to begin. Yeah. That's what I think so. Yeah. Actually, technically, you could wear basketball shorts and a tank top. You could. Not recommended. Not recommended. Especially the basketball shorts. Yeah. They will be pulled down. Pulled down, pulled up, pulled up, caught on people's toes yep. sometimes. Just not yeah, a good plan. Not as good as like, yeah, maybe some board shorts because yeah. they don't as far as, yeah. Nonetheless, this is where you can get <laughs> these things from. Origin. OriginMain.com. That's where you go. Get a rash guard. Get a gi. Best gi in the world, factually, by the way. Also happens to be made in America. Are they the best because they're made in America? Maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. But those are two separate Either attributes. Either way, we like it. Oh, yeah. Best games in the world. Many different options there. Also, rash guards, like I said. Also, joggers. Yeah. Like I've said before. But, yeah, a lot of clothes, apparel, we'll say. Well, what you're missing is jeans. Yes. There are jeans. Yeah. Wait, can we get jeans now? We should be getting jeans now. I know I have origin jeans. I know I'm in a little bit of a preferred scenario. Yeah. So I know people. Yeah. So I was going to say, wait, if we can all get jeans now, that's interesting because I didn't get any jeans. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the jeans are being made at this time. Yeah. So they're available. We'll say. Denim. American denim. American made. Best jeans ever, obviously. Obviously. And, yeah, check them out. Yeah, orgymain.com. Also, supplements. Mm-hmm. Best kind of supplements. So I've come to the conclusion, the, the, the harsh conclusion, that exercise, generally speaking, is probably the best thing you can do for yourself. Agree. Generally speaking. Yep. I'm not saying there's no exceptions. I'm not saying that. Yep. And you're not saying that throw everything else into the dumpster. Correct, yes. So when, when it comes to supplements, okay, wh- so what is, what's the best kind of supplements to take then? If we understand that exercise is the best thing you can do for yourself, what kind of supplements? Is it like muscle building supplements? Or is it, this is what I'm asking myself as I'm driving, because I drive sometimes. <laughs> or is it the kind of supplement that allows you to stay able to exercise at full capacity longer probably those right i know what you think yeah yeah those you, ones. you like the joint warfare krill oil yes sir you like the discipline right because and i say this because it's not self-intuitive it's not just intuitive you think supplements get my body bigger or whatever stronger but what if you do want to get more yoked let's say how about you get some of that milk like you said we don't throw everything else into the dumpster i'm just saying this is you know, when i go so on yes. the road and i eating whatever and when i go on the road i go on a trip i eat i usually eat really good because i go out to steak restaurants and i get ribeyes yes sir 
And no matter what, when I come home, I want to have milk. Yeah, because I have that mint chocolate chip milk. Because it's like a dessert, it's or a it dessert. is a dessert. It is a dessert without the the guilt. Without actually, the crap. Yeah. The, yeah. It's literally good for you. Yeah. How can you get a dessert that's actually good for you? I'll tell you how. You go to originmain.com. You get milk, and if you got kids, instead of feeding kids junk that's horrible for them, mm-hmm. you get them some Warrior Kid milk. You will have kids that want to drink something that's awesome for them. Yep. And by the way, it's a meal, by the way. Yep. They will be stoked. Yep. So get your kids some Warrior Kid milk. Tasty. People have been asking about when the strawberry adult milk is coming out. <laughs> I, told B, I told B Little, do not mess this up. I'm like, B Little, the strawberry kid's milk is epic. It's epic. Yeah. I said, if you mess up, and the and the adult strawberry milk is an epic. We're gonna have an issue. <laughs> That's a problem. So yes. Belittle's on the case. Yeah. Well, he's on the case. Yeah, man, it's true. Also, Jocko's store. It's called Jocko's store. So go to JockoStore.com. This is where you can get shirts, hoodies, rash ra- guards. Uh, more rash guards, all representative of this path that we're on. And we're on the path. Certainly. And we're going to stay on the path. We're yes. going to stay on the path until the path path ends. And guess what? The little answer to that little riddle, the path doesn't end. The path doesn't end. So, but if you want to represent JockoStore.com, got some new stuff on there, by the way. What? A little new design of the hoodies, you know? Uh, some people really like that one. Nonetheless, hey, look, go check it out. If you like something, get something. Truckers hats, beanies, stickers. There's some, uh, yeah, there's bumper stickers on there. There's patches on there. There's more. I just designed a new rash guard. It's not like totally new, but it's a new rash guard. Okay. Sent it to Pete. We're getting it done. It should be there in, you know, within the week. Um, Also, I know you talk a lot of trash to me about lightweight hoodies. Yeah. We're going to do a lightweight hoodie, 100%. It's in the pipe. (laughs) Okay. Jocko unapproved. My but when you see it, it's going to be approved. Anyway, if you like something, get something. If I was going to wear a lightweight hoodie, I would just wear a t-shirt, bro. Yeah, I dig it. But some <laughs> of us, you know, we like that. There's like this little intermediary pos- uh, uh, situation where it's not hot. It's cold, but it's not cold, cold. You know, like when the wind bro, sort of blows consistently and you're like, you know, I could. only I could. by the grace of decentralized command. Yes. That this is happening. Yes. Because despite what you're saying to me, yes. a medium or whatever you said, a lightweight, lightweight hoodie, hoodie makes no logical sense to me as a human. Well, you know, that's one of the many differences between me and you. <laughs> and I think that there are a lot of people out there who support me on this decision, okay, which we is will track, why. We will track and see if anyone buys lightweight hoodies. <laughs> <laughs> Going to the numbers. Okay. I understand. Yeah. Also, there's women's stuff. We will on present there. them to the people. Yeah. Cool. Well, there it is. Yeah. Anyway, JockoStore.com. There's some women's stuff on there. There's cool stuff. If you like something, get something. It's a good way to represent for sure. Also, Jocko White Tea. Mm-hmm. If you want to deadlift 8,000 pounds, if you're not already, okay, this is the reason or one of the reasons, unless you're already a tea drinker, even if you're not a tea drinker, because I wasn't a tea drinker and I drink Jocko White Tea. So I am a tea drinker te- technically. This is the r- original. This is like the first thing. What? I'm going to make something. I'm going to make this tea. Oh, the, the yes, first the thing. tea is the OG the product, thing, yes. The OG product. Yeah. I it's, had some on the way over here. Yeah. You know what's funny, man? If you kind of Because reflect. I was a little bit chilly. I wanted some warm tea. I could have used a little lightweight hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> 
for bro. No, anyway, it's interesting how all these products is all stuff that you use. So you're like, you're like walking, not walking, but you're just sort of existing. You're like, hmm, instead of like, you know, getting this stuff, let me just make so And it turns out well, that no, like it's you like, make all your own stuff. Now. Well, the thing is, if you're going to, I'm picky. That's my problem. I'm picky about what I like and what I don't like. Yeah, picky and so, basic. Yeah, well, I'm straightforward, but yeah. I'm picky. I want this specific thing a specific way. Mm-hmm. And you can't buy what I want, or you couldn't. Right. You couldn't buy what I want. Now you can. <laughs> this is what I want. Yeah, it makes sense. It's just man. like everything. Like the like Victory MMA and Fitness, our gym. Yeah. Why is that? Why does it exist? Because we want it to have the way we want things to be. You can't just you can't go to someone else's gym and expect it to be the way you want it. Yeah, you true. can't buy some supplement off the shelf and expect it to taste the way you want it to taste. It's going to taste the way some random person in some other area <laughs> wanted it to taste, yes, and they sir. they don't know what tastes good. Yeah. Well, and they're going to take once yeah. they figure they have to put in the, they're just trying to make the maximum profit margin, so they're putting filler whatever right. yeah that yeah so makes anyways, sense make totally makes sense if you're going to make something then if you have to you if you want to use something why not make it the way you want it origin jeans by the way same thing yeah the way i want them to be made the way Pete likes them made yeah you know in yeah. america so anyways yeah that's how we end up doing this stuff cool boom yeah good i'm glad you did by the way oh and uh some people we joked about subscribing to the podcast. I yeah. saw some comments that people d- didn't hadn't subscribed to the podcast until the last show. <laughs> this dude was like, I listened to 163 episodes and I never subscribed to the podcast until you said and joked about who would listen to 163 episodes and not subscribe to the podcast. And he said, that was me. Huh. So there might be one other person out yeah. there that hasn't subscribed to the podcast or hasn't subscribed to the YouTube channel yeah. or hasn't subscribed to the Warrior Kid podcast. So yeah, if you haven't subscribed corrected. to those things, do so. Wait, what do you mean you stand corrected? You're the one that always says like there might be someone that's, and I didn't believe you. I think, I don't know if I'd ever say it for subscribing, but it was, well, Yes. No, I, I always said or feel that it seems obvious yes. like, to subscribe, but subscribe. And I always thought that that was dumb. Yeah. And I thought to myself, who could listen to this podcast over and over again and not subscribe to it? But that rubbed off on me and I started to feel that way. In fact, because right now I'm trying to search my feelings and I do feel that way. Like, yeah, yeah. you just, why are you telling people to subscribe? So we don't need know. to say this anymore. But now what I'm saying is we got reports back from the field yeah. of people that didn't subscribe yet. 162 podcasts deep. Huh. And now we're 164 podcasts. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, subscribe to the podcast. If you check out the YouTube channel, by the way, the YouTube channel, Echo's videos are on there. He's real proud of them. He's real proud of them. He puts little things exploding. <laughs> Some people think it's too much. Well, I'm not Some gonna, I'm not gonna too argue much. with that one. Sometimes they're sometimes they're right in there. It's a dichotomy. You got to balance the dichotomy. No, yep. no effects. Too many effects. Yeah. Well, it's a, there's varying levels of appropriateness with effects. We'll yeah. say. So at some point, I want you to purposely make a video that's completely. You take whatever I've said on this podcast that's over the top, anyways, and yep. then just make the most over the top video. That is a good. I idea. remember one time I said, "Don't sleep, eat steak." 
train, train hurt, hurt or yeah. something like that. That's <laughs> yeah. what that's what the video should be. It should right. be about that. Just guys right. with broken legs crawling out on the mat with a steak yeah. hanging out of their mouth with <laughs> you know like that kind of thing over the top everything yeah. exploding fire because yep. a lot of times your explosions don't have fire a lot well, of times they're just smoking more more well, like smoke and dust yeah you keep it dark yeah they're less explosions more just like dis- ren- like various levels of destruction <laughs> <laughs> so check that out. Check out the Warrior Kids Soap at irishoaksranch.com. Young Aiden making Warrior Kids Soap. Check out Psychological Warfare. Little tidbits of information to help you overcome momentary weakness. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you how to do it. It's not real complicated, yeah. but it is effective. Yep. Check. Amazon Music, that's where you can get it. Yes. And iTunes. And iTunes. Wherever you buy MP3s, that's where you, that's mm. what's called Psychological Warfare. It's a good one. Very much so. Also, you want to subscribe to the Warrior Kid podcast. I said that. I'm glad you're emphasizing it, though. Well, yeah, I thought you didn't say that. Okay. I think I missed it. Emphasize. Nonetheless, nonetheless, yeah, yeah, it's a good one. That's a good one for you and the kids, both of you guys, because they're, they're, they're good lessons, but they're super basic. Just like this. Just mm. like this book, man. Mm. Very much so. Also, on it. On it.com. Go there. Slash Jocko. On it.com. Slash Jocko. This is where you can get kettlebells. Add to your home gym. Add to your capability. Rings. Add to that capability. I just got some, uh, the Stormtrooper one. Star Wars. Straight bro, up, huh? Bro, don't hate on that, Russ. They're, they're dope. Nonetheless, a lot of good stuff on there. Good fitness stuff. Do, do, good when gear. you think of Stormtroopers, do you actually think of like badass yeah okay. no because no. i always think of them as just things that get shot all the time yes and that and, and that is true that is true but are they one, humans yeah they're people they're troopers actually i think they're clones oh, of, okay. human, of people so they're just that's why they're just fodder they just get killed by laser beams all the time in the movie yes but when you see a stormtrooper kettlebell it's pretty cool okay and there's a darth vader one too there's a iron man one and there's a uh, the bubble fett guy or Django Fett, or both of them. I don't know. They wear the same helmet, so nonetheless. Are they related? They're, one is where the clone came from, if I'm not mistaken. Check. Interesting. I, I don't know. I might have got my Star Wars mythology mixed up. But nonetheless, they are kettlebells now. On it makes them, and they're dope. Oh. A lot of cool stuff on there. Onit.com slash Jocko. We got Mikey and the Dragons book. That's available right now for every kid that you know. Get a Mikey and the Dragons. Way the Warrior Kid and Way the Warrior Kid 2, Mark's Mission. Those are books to show your kid how to be on the path. And now we have coming Warrior Kid 3, which now has a subtitle. And the subtitle is Where There's a Will. So he has to dig deep in this book. He learns a little bit about digging deep. He also learns a little bit about humility. Mm. He learns about ego for the first time. His ego starts getting involved. So check out those books. That I will let you know when Warrior Kid 3 is available for pre-order, which we're going to be a little bit more efficient this time when we do pre-order so we don't get into the Mikey and the Dragon situation where people have to wait a little extra time to get the book when it comes out. So book three, I'll let you know when that's ready. The field manual, discipline equals freedom. Field manual available right now. I was with a buddy of mine that's a in in the finance world and has you know one of those uh, 
I guess it'd be a stereotypical office of the finance, the investment bankers. You know what I'm talking about? Everything's uh-huh. all clean and white, New York City type thing. Oh, yeah, sure. And he showed me a picture in there as you walk in this beautiful, clean office mm-hmm. entryway. It's not even an office, it's like a thing. A four yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, one of those. And there's a white table. It is a big white table. You know, it's probably eight by eight. Yeah. There's one book by itself. Yeah. The field manual, and he says, and he says his his um, front office girl the other day said everyone that comes in looks at that book and says, "What is this? Where did this come from? Where did you get this?" Every single person makes yeah. a comment. So that's the field manual, discipline equals freedom field manual. Get it for anyone that needs to a little help being on the path. Yeah. And you know who needs help being on the path? Everybody. Extreme ownership, first book I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. Leadership lessons from the battlefield, and then we wrote the dichotomy of leadership, which gives some guidance on how to be more balanced as a leader. Because if you get out of balance as a leader and you go extreme in one direction or the other, in a multitude of various dichotomies, you will rip your team apart, which is not good. So, dichotomy of leadership, get that one. We also got Echelon Front, which is our leadership consultancy, and that's what we do is we solve problems through leadership. It's me, it's Leif Babin, J.P. Donnell, Dave Burke, Flynn Cochran, Mike Sorelli, Mike Byma. Go to echelonfront.com if you want us to come and work with your company, get your leadership aligned, and get your entire organization on the path to victory. Hit us up. We have the muster, which is our leadership event. 2019, we're doing May 23rd and 24th in Chicago. We're doing September 19th and 20th in Denver, and we're doing December 4th and 5th in Sydney, Australia. Are you going to Australia with us? Yes. Okay, so that's what's happening. Every event that we've done has sold out. And when I say sold out, I mean where personal friends of mine are saying, hey, hey, it's a little late, but can you just, uh, just I just need three seats you know, for me and uh, my girlfriend and my buddy, we're gonna go. And I'm like, uh, actually, no, I can't. There's no more seats and the fire code will not allow any more human beings in there. So these all are gonna sell out. There'll be no um, alibis. Like, like, well in the military it's called safe rounds or alibis, meaning like uh, I got an extra round. Hey, just hey, one, one more. Like gotcha. no, that's not gonna happen. Gotcha, yeah. So, and don't get mad if that does happen. You know, oh Jocko, you, you. No, <laughs> can't help you. Yes. Uh, we have to talk to the fire marshal. <laughs> so if you want to come, sign up early, extremeownership.com. I'll tell you what, the Australia one is going to be, it's going to sell out quick because I think there's 450 seats. That is not a lot. When I did a book signing up in Brizzy, up in Brisbane, Australia, Brisbane, there was a ton of people there that flew to Brisbane to to, to hang out for five minutes you know, get a book signed. So that one in Sydney is gonna be sold out quick. So jump on there if you wanna come down, if you're a trooper in the game, come to the musterextremeownership.com. EF Online, now active. What is it? It's interactive leadership training online. It actually puts you into scenarios that you have to figure out, that you have to make decisions. Combat scenarios business scenarios, role-playing scenarios, dealing with people, 
it's it's awesome training. It will really ingrain the principles of extreme ownership, the laws of combat, the dichotomy leadership. It'll ingrain them into you. It'll make you a better leader. That is efonline.com. Whether you're a company that wants to use it as enterprise service or you're just an individual that wants to get in the game deeper, go to efonline.com. And we also have EF Overwatch, where we're taking proven combat leaders from special operations and combat aviation communities, and we're putting them into businesses that need experienced, proven leaders. Go to efoverwatch.com if you're on either side of that calculation, whether you're a vet that needs work or whether you're a company that needs leaders, let us know, efoverwatch.com. And... If you want to talk to us or you want to share a good book with us like somebody shared the psychology for the fighting man with me on the interwebs, that's where we can be found on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. Echo is at Echo Charles and I am at Jocko Willink. And of course, thanks to all of those who serve our military personnel, police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, correctional officers, border patrol, all first responders, all of you that put on a uniform and protect us from evil in the world. We can only do what we do because you do what you do. So thank you. And to everyone else out there that is listening, remember to train hard. Do your best to prepare, stay in the fight, and even though you might not feel like it sometimes, you can drive on. You can push through. You can deal with unimaginable adversity. As long as you keep getting up every day, moving forward, and getting after it. So until next time, this is Echo and Jocko, out.